What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 59 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Razan Evolution, where you can visit at RazanEvolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we get to hear from Kale, better known as Shwale of Farmhouse Studios, based in Portland, Oregon. We discuss his early interest in both cannabis and photography, and how that led him to Denver and eventually Oregon. He shares with us how his path as a cultivator has led him towards the creation of genetics, specifically for the water hash potential we dive into a discussion about trichomes abscission points and much more for the first time in the podcast history there is an additional segment recorded at a separate time it was done as a follow-up to the original recording you'll find the additional segment at the end of this episode so definitely tune in a special thank you to zach brown glass for providing all our guests with my favorite carb cap his v2 series which you can find on his site zachbrownglass.com or on Instagram at Zach Brown Glass. I'd also like to thank everyone who makes up our community on Patreon. It is through your support that I'm able to keep doing this work and I'm forever grateful to each one of you. The community on Patreon gets early releases on new episodes. You receive stickers for joining. You have access to additional interviews, new merchandise and more. So if you ever can or want to join our community, you can find us at patreon.com backslash the hashishin. That's the hashish I-N-N. Find the link through our Instagram at the hashishin or through our website, thehashishin.com. A big shout out to another reason that we could keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors, including our homies and partners, Rosin Evolution, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on their Instagram at rosinevolution100, where you'll find everything you need to make rosin, including the most trusted rosin bags in hash, as well as the best deal in hash in their full mesh wash bags made of the same reliable material, trusted by makers across the nation for both their high quality products products and stellar customer service they have what you need when you need so when you need anything to make rosin visit our homies again at rosinevolution.com or on instagram at rosinevolution100 and to save an additional five percent on your entire order while supporting the podcast use our savings code the letters t-h-i the number 710 again that's t-h-i 710 all together saves you five percent at rosinevolution.com while supporting the podcast. We want to welcome our newest sponsor, Resendial, who you can visit on Instagram at Resendial on their website, dialinyourresin.com. From the mind of award-winning hash maker and a good friend of mine, Simply Adam, the Resin Dial helps you dial in your resin by allowing you to quantify the resin being produced by the genetics currently in your garden. Using its three ring design, it allows you to use interchangeable filters to not only see how much resin a particular genetic is producing, but what micron range it's producing in. Knowing what range your hash Falls in is essential to understanding the genetics and fine-tuning your resin. The resin dial is a tool made for hash makers by a hash maker and now it's back in stock. You can find the new resin dial 2.0 in its beautiful jet black finish again at dialinyourresin.com 
or on Instagram at Resendial. Another shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up myself and guests with the best ceiling carb caps around. It's been a while now, but when I first tried Zach's caps, I was blown away. I was able to dive at lower temps and get more flavorful and efficient hits than ever before. So if you want to dive more efficiently, grab the only carb cap I use, the V2 series at ZachBrownGlass.com. That's Z-A-C-H BrownGlass.com or on his Instagram at ZachBrownGlass. Shout out to the homies Toro, one of the true legacy glass brands. You can find all their gear, including slurpers and rigs at ToroGlassGallery.com or on Instagram at Toro underscore glass. I appreciate you listening and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 59 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shiragam Amir. Today, I could not be more stoked to be here with Kale, aka Shwale of Farmhouse Studio. You can follow them on Instagram at Shwale, that's S-H-W-A-L-E, or at Farmhouse Studio, that's Farmhouse underscore Studio, S-T-U-D-0. What's up, man? How are you? Good, Shiragam. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing good too, man. It was really nice to get to meet you a little bit in Portland. And I know we've been trying to do this for a while and you guys keep, you know, really busy with your projects and breeding. So I appreciate you taking the time. I've been super looking forward to it. I definitely am an admirer of your work, not only the genetics, but also the photography. So I'm stoked to get into it with you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Uh, Sorry it's been so long, but yeah. Likewise, I I like what you've got going on with this podcast and the smoking jacket. Like, I think you, you got a good thing going on, buddy. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. So let's start with the name. There's a lot of mystery out there. Is it Shwale? Is it Shwali? What is it? You know, can, can you just coming from you? What is it? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely Shwale because my name's Kale, which I don't know why I've been like reluctant to tell everybody. Yeah. And, you know, just a nickname. We were, Drinking a little too much, getting shwilly, kind of, and that just it stuck. Everybody that night was like, whatever, Schwad was Brad, you know, like everybody had that name, but Schwale stuck. And <laughs> yeah, that just never could get rid of it. So that's funny, man. Yeah. Like I said, I think it's been a cause of mystery for a lot of us, including people that have been on the podcast. They're like, I'm not sure how to quite say that. And you know, I caught a little wind of it on your Discord where, you know, you were talking a little bit about it, but it's always a good thing to get it straight from the art. Yeah. We thought it was funny when we started hearing people were like, Chwale. And we were like, well, it's so good. Uh, whatever, you know, like that, that works. Like, so, um, yeah, just been happy people talk about us and you can, Chwale works at this point. Yeah, that's funny. I saw you post in the comments where you're like, if you're feeling fancy, you can go with Charlotte, you know, at this point. Yeah, it sounds like either way. And it's funny that you say, you know, as long as people are are talking about us. And recently I saw that you guys had an article drop in High Times, which, you know, you and I are relatively around the same age. And growing up, it was definitely one of like the big things, if not like the big thing. And obviously things have changed. And uh, it may be a little different than what it used to be, but what does it feel like for you to, you know, now have like a cover article in high times? Yeah, totally. It's definitely a little surreal. And yeah, it uh, uh, feels kind of like uh, one of those moments for sure. And just kind of when you look back at your childhood and yeah, something I never really thought 
I would be in. But uh, yeah, we're super grateful that they reached out to us about what we're doing and like gave us a like a you know a nice solid article that really explains you know what we're trying to do and so it's kind of one of the first times we've really been like able to tell our story so yeah that's very cool and also one thing that i wanted to highlight just because i got to meet her uh in oregon when i was there as well as uh, your partner daisy is also part of the squad and you guys together are doing this work which is something that i don't think like everybody necessarily knows yeah totally um so yeah just Daisy and I, and it's kind of just always been Daisy and I, and I'd, somewhere along the way, I like met this guy who had like a tinier grow in Colorado, and he had a tiny little dispensary because you got to be vertically integrated, and he was just like super happy. I just kind of realized that I wanted to stay small and be happy kind of thing, and I would see a lot of the other people that got real big would get stressed and it just kind of looked like it wasn't worth it anymore. So I think that that's been one of our ways we've been able to stay as that we've, you know, in and be relevant because we've just been lean and be able to kind of have long legs. What do you think can be some of the challenges of staying lean and, and staying small outside of, you know, the, the positives or the benefits as like you mentioned, one of the big things is being happy. For sure. Um, it's definitely been a slower kind of road getting people to you know pay attention and you know take notice of what we're doing since we're kind of got to go just a little bit slower and we, we can't you know push quite as hard and just even having like a smaller crew and not being you know how kind of clicky the the whole community can be it's like it could be hard to also make the connections that we need to make and be out there and you know but it, we've we've been working on it. We've been working on trying to find those connections. Yeah, that's cool. So kind of diving into your past a little bit, what was the first time that you started consuming cannabis? Uh, I was definitely young, you know, 13 with, I was a skater, punk kid, you know, just an older brother. He was a you know, skater. Yeah. Metal pipe, I think he made from like actual pipe fittings from the hardware store, you know, because we were too young to to go buy a pipe. And yeah, like it was definitely one of those moments. It was like from then on, I smoked weed, you know, and all of, every, all of my friends smoked weed. We were definitely way too young to be smoking weed. But yeah, it really did become a thing for me. And at what point did you start becoming aware of trichomes? Was that early on or was that kind of relatively later on definitely early really you know just like a keith catcher or whatever like uh, even hash i was you know like the early days of like brown hash when i was even young i was still like pretty obsessed with hash or making any kind of like you know extract with a the dry keith box and just kind of understanding even what's going on. Um, my uncle, I guess it's not technically my uncle, but he, uh, it's kind of known as my uncle, would give me Barnes & Noble books, uh, book card, gift cards. And I would go and buy like these, you know, weed books, like how to grow weed or like, you know, the can of Bible. And, you know, he's thinking I'm going and like, 
getting a book, you know, <laughs> instead of getting, and it's like a book I still use, you know, like the Canna Bible by Jorge Cervantes, you know, like it, I still use it. It's a good book, stuff like that. And you could see little macro photos in these old books from the nineties that, you know, like Robert Clark was doing and they talked about, Hey, you know, up here at the gland, that's the, the part that you want, you know, at the top. And you just, once you start to kind of understand, uh, yeah, it, it changes things for sure. Now you said you and your brother and your group of friends all smoked. Was everybody, did everybody have that level of interest to, for example, go and, and buy the books at Barnes and Nobles and investigate more? Or were they more like casual users and you were, were one of the people who like really got into it, which seems to be the case with a lot of the people who end up being on the podcast, for example. Definitely. I was always the, like the cannabis nerd in the group and yeah, they weren't the ones going to get the books and um, even just, you know, like the photos and I, my dad was a photographer and I would always kind of like slip aside with his camera and try to take photos of weed, you know? And so it's just like, I've always been really interested in cannabis and photography and close-ups of cannabis even. So, yeah. And you brought up the hash and being interested in, and obviously like the Keith catchers, like you were saying, we were a lot, lots of us were familiar with that from grinding up our weed. I don't necessarily knew that I really pieced that all together at that point. You know, I knew that there was something valuable there, but having grown up in the Midwest, how accessible was that to you but the keef catcher is it, or just hash and weed in general i guess but yeah more towards leaning towards the hash side yeah hash was definitely really rare and would only come around every once in a while and that is why once i learned about you know just like the keef collector and then also just like oh keef screens you know like a keef box kind of back then it that became we a, a friend of mine had a keef box and it was like i, I gotta borrow that thing you know and i never gave it back and the dude was like dude you gotta give that back to me and i finally do it yeah but it's like all right now i gotta make my own and like yeah always just been like we need to separate these trichomes from the plant material and try to make it like you know stronger <laughs> from that point on where did your interest in cultivating start from? It sounds like it kind of was like a natural evolution from smoking it, knowing that you liked it, looking more into it and finding out that there were more complexities to it than maybe we could have imagined. So when does cultivation enter the picture? Oh, pretty much when I got that book that, you know, it was like how to grow when I was too young, I was obsessed with growing and would try to grow like, you know, secretively in my closet and got in trouble or uh, on the roof. I would get it like pretty, I'd get pretty far and then they'd find it on the roof. And then I was like, okay, I'll go over here to this field. So definitely, you know, at a young age, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to grow. Every time I got a seed, I would like, I'm going to grow this, you know? And then, you know, later on, friends would be growing and we had like some, Lots that we would go take care of in the woods and stuff and kind of got to be, you know, like it's in basements and, you know, we're in Missouri. And so, but I did learn a little bit really once, 
it was like, ah, okay, we're moving to Denver, you know, like, and when, once we got to Denver, I just wanted to grow and it wasn't like, I'm going to make a business out of this. It was just like, I want to move to Denver to grow weed because I can grow weed there. And yeah, it just kind of like took, takes off at that point. Like if you're good at it and like, it just won't stop kind of. And yeah, the Denver was pretty crazy. Like they had stuff like edible cards, you know, in quotation that we would, the doctor would give you like big plant counts and stuff. And we learned a lot. I also just did a lot of the photography, like freelance photography for gardens and learned a lot. I go into big gardens and, you know, picking people's brains and figuring out what works, what like, Oh, look at this, you know, like this, this is working and uh, it doesn't look so good. Like, you know, and we soaked up a lot of info, just running around taking photos. How important do you feel like that was for your own development is kind of seeing the trials and tribulations of other people through doing the photography at that time? Very important. You know, like I don't know. At the time I didn't recognize it and it was, you know, we were growing too. And, you know, the photography was just like a way to get money. You know, we weren't making enough and photography was like, okay, we're getting, and I can still be around cannabis and, you know, do some stuff I like, but yeah, looking back, it's definitely like, wow. I learned so much from many of the, the steps and met a lot of people. And even, you know, to this day, I continue to meet people through photography and build relationships. And like, it is very important. Like this Sebastian at BA Botanicals, who I've gotten and traded many genetics with is a friend because he wanted me to take photos, you know, and I took some photos for him and we became buddies. And it's just, yeah, it's kind of amazing how much photography has helped us. Yeah, shout out Sebastian. He's a cool dude. I got a chance to meet him lately at the Smoking Jack. Right. He actually kind of reminds me of you. You guys are both, you know, just very fun to be around, honestly. Well, thanks, man. So going back to those initial seeds that you were popping in the woods, were those just bag seeds that you were finding or were you sourcing seeds from overseas or something of the sort? Um, at that point, we had like, you know, some clones uh, that a friend had sourced, you know, that most of the seeds were kind of at the my childhood and like around the fields of my childhood, kind of trying to make something happen. I don't think any of those were successful. I never really got, I just continued to try and try. But later we had like, you know, clones, like thunderfuck comes to mind you know old blockhead like weird clones that just aren't even around anymore i really just i have always been around weed in high school they used to call me kale pot at one school it was like it went from shwale to kale pot and you know like i've just always been kind of just known for cannabis so when did you start understanding the importance of genetics whether it was through the clones or when you even conceived of starting to make your own seeds? Um, yeah. So I, genetics, we, we kind of figured that out pretty early. And when we moved to Denver, like there's quite a bit of 
clones to get and places to go. I remember when we first showed up, uh, my buddy took me to a dispensary and they were selling like seven foot tall or five foot tall moms, which they weren't supposed to, but it was just like whatever at the time. And so we're driving home with these plants and his SUV. It's like the first month I'm there. And there's just like, they're sticking out the window. Everybody's like waving at us. And I'm just like, okay, you know, like, welcome to Denver. <laughs> but yeah, just like the whole, like, okay, that one, you would grow them out and be like, that one's way better than this one. And we grew them the same. So it was apparent right away that like genetics really matter. And, you know, we also got some good clones along the way from, you know, taking photos. And we, i when we were in Denver, we mostly grew from clone. You know, it's easier. And then there's just like a big sea of cuts to choose from. And then when we came to Oregon, it started to be like, you know, let's let's get some seeds. Like we don't we don't have the access anymore. And that was another time when I was starting to realize, like, okay, like these aren't very good seeds. Like these, you know, we could do better than this. You know, didn't really do anything, but then later started to kind of just like want to, you know, explore the breeding. And I think maybe just something about being able to create a new thing that nobody else has was intriguing to me. Of like, the, the, you know, wonder what's, what could happen. And I'll be the only one that has it. Like all that was like, oh, this is exciting. And definitely helped bring excitement back into growing. And it just suits me, really. For someone that maybe has never grown cannabis or maybe many plants in general, what would you say would be some of the positive of growing a clone versus growing from seed? Uh, clones are good just because of the, like the reliability. You know, you can talk to your friend and be like, oh, you know, you can see it. And you also can kind of be like growing from a clone is good when you've got like a bunch you can know that it's going to be nice and uniform and the whole tray is going to look similar and produce and be the same height and all these it's just a way to make things easier really but there are some advantages to growing from seed that i think kind of get overlooked sometimes and just like they, they are more genetically like placid they can like adapt more to your you know, climate, environment, your growth style. Whereas the clones have kind of set in their ways. They've kind of already learned a lot from going through their little adolescent seedling life and growing all the way up in someone else's environment. So you got to kind of reach each other. Oh, well, you know, you're going to grow like this in my environment. And yeah, they're kind of finicky plants. We've had them, you know, babied them and... sometimes it doesn't you know it's better to just have to grow from some seed if you really want to have like a mom that you're keeping and then you can clone off that and so it's yeah i mean there are advantages both ways like you know we have clones they're really good and you you're kind of jumping the the line and so so it sounds like growing from seed can sometimes maybe create a little malleability in the genetics to where they can kind of conform to you and the growing environment and the growing practices, maybe a little more so than the clones and the clothes can be a little rigid in that sense, but they do 
provide this predictability of growth patterns and maybe possible returns and certain turf. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So, you know, if you're, if you're going, Hey, I want like, you know, I've got to get this into production. I'm a big business. I don't have the time to do all the stuff that you guys have done with testing the phenos and the washing. Just give me the one that's the best. Then yeah, you know, you're going to want a clone and it's definitely worth it to have to be able to skip all that that time but if you really want like something special that you know is going to like withstand your grow environment for a long time and kind of be like exactly what you want then the seeds are are the route you know and furthermore as you said earlier in a different context is the possibility of finding something new just like you were excited about creating something new through the seeds there's this almost unlimited potential i feel like genetically to find you know different things that outliers as people sometimes call them exactly yeah like a, a different genotype a different seed could just like your style of growing better is really what it comes down to and seeds are are very vigorous and there's just a different whole like hormonal thing that's going on when they're young compared to taking a cologne and having this plant that's like, you know, kind of been tricked to continue growing. Again, advantages to both. And it's kind of just what you need, what we're looking for. Now, going back to Denver, you mentioned this to me in a private conversation is at some point you went, and I'm not sure if it was the same dispenser you brought up earlier or not, but you saw large macros of trichomes. And from that point on, that was something that not only intrigued you, but you saw as a potential tool. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. It was at River Rock and I was taking photos for them. And Tony was an extremely helpful person at the time he owned River Rock. He had some crazy macros on the wall that you know were blowing up really big, these trichomes. And it just kind of you know blew my mind. How could you get that much detail you know and he kind of told me i got this photography buddy he's a pro and he's in new york and we had to go out there and he had to like turn all the lights off and turn the camera lights kind of went around and 360 and take all these photos and pretty much he's explaining me stacking you know photos but he doesn't totally know and he's just trying to like give me and it would just be like flash 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 forever and it's like okay you know later i realized yeah it's like this whole stacking process and i don't think that that many people were really doing you know it's kind of a niche thing that he probably his buddy was kind of head of the game and yeah it just totally blew my mind that you could do that and i had to kind of like investigate like more and then you know later i kind of noticed people like beer goggles or dynasty genetics professor p doing macros and getting in there close and i was like how are you doing this you know or even just bubble man it's a, you know he's got hit the mpe 65 i got i need to get that you know just kind of started getting in there as much as i could try to do any kind of macro lens really i was trying to trying to figure out how to get these shots and for someone that may not be familiar with the photographic term stacking, how is the best way that you could summarize what that is for someone? Uh, yeah, totally. Pretty much the 
camera has like a, a fixed spot where it's in focus. That's just so far away from the lens. You can't change that spot. You just so what you do to get a detailed photo is you move the camera and it takes like little slices pretty much of detail. Then later stitches all those slices together. And so you're taking like, you know, hundreds of photos usually and at, with a nice little program slides them all together and you get a highly detailed photo. And it's just a way to deal with the shallow focus that a macro lens has like any kind of microscope can only you know focus so far because you're looking up close and this is just okay let's put all the detailed images together similar to the question that i asked you about learning from other grow rooms when you were doing the photography how essential has it become for you to not only learn how to do it but how it's informed your work whether it's the growing or the breeding? Yeah, totally. So I'm um, like, I really, I got into it and it was just more of like a curiosity. And then kind of once you start to look up close, you get to see stuff that kind of will be like, what's that? And you want to explain what's that? And you start to dig in more. So it's like, you know, once you get this better view, you're, you're all of a sudden like, well, I'm going to need to like figure out what's going on. It's just kind of snowballs. It continues. And the next thing you know, you're like just deep, like you're deep in this information tunnel. And you, yeah, I have figured out a lot of stuff that, I mean, sometimes I can find scientific articles that correlate. And sometimes it'll be like, you know, what, what that scientific article is saying is not what I'm seeing time and time again through the macro lens. So, you know, to me, that doesn't quite make sense. And I, I kind of feel like I've got this view that I've acquired over time of cannabis close-up. So speaking of trichomes, when you were growing back in Missouri in these experiments, um, assuming that you were growing for dried flower mostly, and then when you went to Denver, was that the case as well? Um, yeah, I mean... When we got there, like BHO was kind of cool and it was starting to pick up and I would go to the local dispensary and get, you know, wax and was starting to get interested in just like, oh, okay, this is cool and new. And you know, we did the open blasting BHO, like, you know, thing that you're not supposed to do for like, I don't know, a year or two. And Somewhere along the line, I we were going to like a little event and Nicotee was there. He had a little dab bar. He was giving away dabs. And I had known who Nicotee was and what he does just from being you know, around at dispensaries taking photos. And, you know, I don't, never, I don't think I've ever done a dab bar. It's my first dab bar. And we walk up and take it. And it was like super lemon haze. And it was just extremely flavorful in comparison to it. It took so like lip smacking and just melty. Like I was like, that's hash, you know, and it just, it looked like wax, but it kind of brighter and it just smelled better. And it just totally, totally changed me and went back. It was like, we're making hash, made hash the next time. And it was just great, you know, like, I, I think I messed up like once, but like the second time, 
just amazing. I could not believe how good it was. You know, it's like, I don't even know what I'm doing. You know, like this is so much better than all the BHO I've made. And yeah, that was like 10 years ago. And so it was just like hash from then on. And again, just to clarify, this was actually hash and not rosin at the time. Yeah, for sure. It, but it kind of like looked like rosin because of the like limonene. It, it had like a rosin quality. You kind of scoop it up. And that was one of the things that like amazed me. He somehow was creating this like extremely clean product. Yeah, just water. No, we don't need any butane. Like, so yeah, I was, I was done with the, the BHO at that point and super glad that that happened. And similar to the growing, once you got kind of hooked on the hash, was that it for you? And like, you just went down that rabbit hole and you haven't stopped ever since? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the kind of that type of person, like, like to take the deep dive on things and the more I could look into it and watch videos, how to make it and how to, how to dry it and all the, you know, like it, stuff like that, that's kind of difficult you know, I like to like figure out the problem. And once you do, it's great. You've got six star. Were you practicing the fresh frozen methodology when working with the BHO? And if so, did that translate obviously then into the fresh frozen for the washing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, just even uh, in Denver, it's just more wet trimming. Then once we moved out here, everybody was like, oh, why are you wet trimming? It's like, well, it's like how we learned, you know, we're pretty much always wet trimmed and yeah, fresh frozen, uh, never washed dry material in my life. So, Was freezing weed to you weird at the time or was it pretty common in Colorado at that time to where you're like, okay, I guess this is just what we do? Yeah, no, um, I had known about just like freezing trim before in like Missouri. So I was like, yeah, totally like keep it fresh, you know, and I, I understand like, okay, so you're going to dry the trichomes kind of later, like the processing is the fresh and then like it dries. It's not like you put it, you dry it. So it's just, you don't need to dry the plant material and yeah. Are you saying that regardless, you feel like the resin will dry over time, whether it's like through the freeze dryer and then afterwards? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like just even, you know, a microplaning or sieving, like you're still going to dry the glands. It's just that's how I've, I've always viewed it is instead of it being on the plant, you're now just separating it from the plant while it's fresh and then drying the trichomes later, you know? Did you start pulling your plants any differently once you started going the fresh frozen route? Did you understand, for example, that pulling the plants at different points produced different results? Yeah, for sure. I've uh, just kind of always even tried to like be aware by finger rubs of like the development of smells and, you know, that kind of the plant is evolving and it's always changing yeah so i've always tried to kind of like understand even like how temperatures and lights 
it's just before even like how they affect the flavor or you know how uh, even high wind or whatever is gonna affect the overall product so i'm constantly trying to analyze and make sense of plants you know and then once you got into the solvent list i'm curious how your understanding of the importance of genetics specifically for that came into play because uh, you know i'm assuming when you were open blasting you could open blast something that would produce xml but then when you wash it it might be a very different thing was that a steep learning curve for you um yeah i mean at the beginning you're you're kind of like going oh like what's this what's what this one did really well this one didn't but Again, I'm just like quickly trying to feel okay. So that that must mean that this one, this strain is just better. It did like for some reason it, it does this process better. And then it just started to become like, why, you know, and I, I would be, compare photos and started getting into like stock length and just like char or even you know, sticky terps and just like the terp, the terpy profile, which ones, you know, start to talk to people in Denver and they're like, oh yeah, fruits wash better. You know, like you, you get, you quickly kind of learn or, or, oh, you know, like OGs or, or like Kim's usually have like shorter stocks and wash well and, and stuff like that. And you start to go, oh, okay, you know, and you, you're taking all these little pieces of information and put them together with the your photos and you know looking and just being like okay so this gland on this long stalk is the same size as this short one and just kind of starting to like like wrap your head around the extra cells that are in that stalk and how it's like four to five times bigger or you know than the gland whereas this other one so if we were just like to weigh this trichome and weigh this trichome and go, okay, you know, like this one is has got a higher amount of cannabinoids and terpenes that they're only in the gland, you know, like so you, you just start to like grasp like how trichomes work. Like one of my favorite little things that I've learned is that uh, like, or I guess I've kind of like grasped lately is that like the stock is a way to get all of these like cannabinoids and terpenes away from the like plant material because it's like toxic to the plant you know and that's just like the way they all work like lavender and rosemary where they want to put this terpene in a gland outside of the, the plant material because it's just like you know i'm trying to create a defense out here kind of thing and i can't have this i gotta i gotta produce it in this gland and have it out and away from me and that's also why, like, so we've got the bulbous, the tiny glands, and the capitate cecile have like a short, very they're very short stalked, and then the capitate stalked glands, which we all are like, yeah, we like these. Well, those are you know bigger and have like more cannabinoids because they're farther away. You know, they have more of the sesquiterpenes and advanced chemicals that the plants like get that away from me. You know, and then like the bulbous glands will contain more just like simple like flavonoids and 
just terpenes because that's not as bad. And there will be quite as much cannabinoids. It's, it's like, it's close, you know, we, we can, so yeah, the plant knows what it's doing pretty much. You know, it's a reason that the stock is there and it's to keep the, these toxic, these self-toxic toxic chemicals like away from itself. And the bulbous ones, just to be clear, are usually the ones that are seem to be almost growing on the plant material. And that's why you're saying, uh, you know, those don't, for example, have a, a long enough stock to, for the plant to want to push out certain chemicals through it versus other types of trichomes. Exactly. They're, they're super tiny. They're usually like 20 uh, microns, maybe 40 wide and right next to the epidermis, uh, you know, like the green part of the plant. And yeah, it's not going to store at like the more complex terpenes or the, you know, uh, as many cannabinoids, just because like if it were to burst and rub against it right there, the plant's not going to like it. You know, it's just not it, like it, it burns. Like sometimes when we're doing, I'm working in the garden and I'm underneath like some of our weak neck plants, I bump up against it the trichomes will fall and hit me in the eye, right? And it's like, they burn. And I'm like, ah, but at the same time, I'm like, yes, like it's working, but it it hurts. Like that (laughs) is, you know, like you wouldn't want that. You want to get that away from you. That's just what's, what's going on. It's interesting to me that the plant kind of evolves to be like, man, we're making some really strong chemicals. Let's send them out. You know, let's get that away from me. And yeah, that's what that's why we have stocks. Yeah, that's super fascinating that the plant is the vehicle for the growth of these trichomes and you know you're inducing it to to do so, but at the same time, the chemical compounds that it's creating isn't necessarily the best for the plant, you know, itself. And so right. it has this very intelligent way of being able to do what it needs to do, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, they really are uh, a shield and they are, they're there to get all the pests away. You know, we just so happened to like their effects. What would you say for you seems to be the ideal type of trichome for water hash making? Both the thin neck and weak neck will work pretty much just um i'm looking for a, a shorter stock like it can't be too short but uh, like in comparison to the gland like not three times once we get more than three times the size of the gland it starts to be like you know that it's just not good yeah rarely does the gland grow larger as the stock elongates like it does happen sometimes but it's kind of the exception to the rule from what i've read and experienced the stock will elongate and the gland will pretty much stay the same size also just like it seems to be in a response to the the amount of light it gets so you know if i'm looking kind of at the very top of a plant, I can see more short stalks with big bulbous glands. But if I kind of look, start to look under to down in an area that's you know, does not getting as much light, the the trichomes start to elongate, and we can't really like point 
to anything within the gland that is like reliant on light to create cannabinoids or terpenes, but it just seems like there may be a correlation with the amount of light they get and how long the stalks are. It's like they're reaching for the light. So to me, it kind of makes sense that something is happening and you know, we don't, we're still kind of like getting all of the details about how it works and they don't know all of it. You know, they don't know every single of the bio pathways that happen within a gland. And, you know, sometimes there's chloroplasts in a gland and sometimes there's not. And sometimes trichomes do need light to produce the secondary metabolites in certain plants. And sometimes they don't. So it's really hard to just like, Pin stuff down. What is chloroplast? Just to be honest. Um, sorry, sorry. Chloroplast is just like you know a chlorophyll kind of chemical. It, it you know needs it can aid in the secondary metabolite of like cannabinoids. Would be the idea. Like you know, it, it's in the stock. Chloroplast. Sometimes you can find it in the stock. It'll, it'll be green. And um, it's just kind of like saying chlorophyll, uh, a you know, like a UV reactive substance that that is like changing light and using it. You know, it can be found within the gland sometimes. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I feel like this is a good time for a smoke break. You down? Yeah, totally. All right, cool. Sounds good. Shout out to our homies and partners, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100, where they have everything you need to make rosin, including the most trusted rosin bags in hash. They have what you need, when you need. So anytime you need anything to make rosin, visit our homies, Rosin Evolution, on Instagram at rosinevolution100, and to save 5% on your entire purchase while supporting our podcast, use the letters THI, the number 710, all together, THI 710, saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com while supporting our podcast. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So let's kind of compare and contrast a couple of the different projects that you've been working on in the last few years, including the sugar coat and the diamond gland. How would you say that these two varieties has shown the progression of your work? Yeah, it's definitely a progression to, to kind of like picture them both in my head. Sugarcoat, really, it was you know one of our beginning strains, one of our first ones we we bred. I don't know how it may have been like a year or two in, and it just something just clicked with that one. We're you know we're in the garden and you rubbing it and it has these sandy, oily glands coming off on your fingers. And it's like, this is different, you know? And um, we had, we bred with the truth, which we had kept around because it was a good washer. And so it was kind of like the years of knowing about good washers that kind of like showed itself, but like, it, you know, the truth never did this trait and never had like these glands that would come off easily. And so, yeah, I guess with diamond glands or, and comparing to sugarcoat, it's like just huge. Like sugarcoat was kind of smaller 
like buds and they're not, not quite as big a yield, like super frosty, but the plants aren't like extremely vigorous and like it, it kind of finishes quickly. And now we have the pretty much the same type like frost structure, but on these extremely big colas, you know, it's kind of like a, a GMO type cola shape um, covered. It looks unreal and much different than where we've, we started, but it's nice. We, you know, back crossed with sugar coat and retained that trichome structure. And we got a lot of weak neck trades. And then we started to get that partial gland abscission and the diamond glands where it kind of grows something else. And, you know, I wasn't, it, it was hard for me to like, at first I was like, Oh, it must be like a broken gland on top. But then I kind of started to like, okay, it's always the same spot and it always looks the same. Like that doesn't make sense. And before we on sugar coat, um, we had seen like triple gland, you know, and I, the same thing I went, okay, well that must be the glands fell off and stuck to this big gland. Like that's, it didn't grow that way. And then now I'm like, okay, I'm looking back. Like it, it grew that way. It grew three glands and, you know, a lot of times we'll see the mutated glands and it will be like what I would like to call sinies, you know, like the two, there's two stalks and that, that many cells, the amount of cells needed for the stalks or there's, you know, they're together, they're kind of like stuck together and then two glands pop out. To me, it's like, okay, let's just a conjoined trichome. Like I, to, I'm trying to get the gland itself to divide, you know, to, tomato trichomes do this. They'll, they'll divide into like four glands at the top. And it kind of looks like a set of balloons or something. And, you know, we can get this to happen. That's like pretty much I'm coming to like, we're, we're going to make this happen. Like we're going to change the way trichomes act. Like it's not that hard. Like we can do this. And I sometimes I feel like, okay, I'm like the crazy guy saying we're going to change trichomes. But it seems possible. I really, we were doing it. Like, you know, with all of our new diamond gland crosses we're, we're looking at, like I'm now taking photos, like the, the very first photo I took of any diamond glands cross, there's a double gland. You can kind of see it. And it has this little bit of a membrane in between. And it's like, this is a 10X shot. There's only like 30 glands in here. And then I start to get more and more in and, and, you know, I can get, oh, wow, there's several. And like, I'm in a, like just a 10X macro. Again, there's not that many glands, like maybe 50 or something. And there are several, like that's growing something weird. That looks, it's got an extra something. And this has got, you know, what looks like it's like an extra wide gland, even like it's just kind of growing outward in a way that it doesn't look normal. And that's super exciting. Like, let's, it's working. Like, all this measuring and paying attention to density and to stock length and just, it, it seems like it, it's working. And just the abscission, the, the whole gland abscission, the weak neck trait um, has turned into like a partial gland abscission. That's what this extra growth is called. It's, it's you know, the cells are creating another cell and another little like space for a cavity and abscission for, for which to grow more of the oils and store them. Yeah. Super exciting. And also just kind of like a weird place to be in, in the beginning of this. So I think it would be an important 
point to maybe define what the abscission point is on a trichome, if you could? Yeah, totally. My bad. So abscission pretty much is just like a spot where cells break. You know, I've always tell people it's like the where a leaf meets a branch on a tree. That's also an abscission zone. And, you know, as some green leaves, you know, fall their leaves, that's a weakening of the abscission zone like that. That's what's happening. It happens at with trichomes with the stalk and the gland, like where they meet those cells, the connection point can get weaker. There's a lot of stuff going on there. There are the disc cells that are within the gland. And they're the ones that produce the cannabinoids and terpenes, so the secondary metabolite producers. Like when they detach, when the abscission happens, they that's when they get brown or amber. And that's kind of the whole like, it's done, you know? And so with weak neck, this is like really prominent. And you can kind of get it when you get a close look, you can see the gland start to kind of shrivel even. Like it is deflating, it's done. You know, and then it will just like fall off. It's, it's not a trait that all uh, plants have. You know, some some plants want to hold on to their glands, and others are, are like, uh, I'm okay with dropping these at this point. I don't really need them anymore. And so, yeah, a decision. And then, like, as the more I looked into it, it can be also used to define like when a gland splits and creates another. Uh, growth that's also an abscission so that's why we have like i'm trying to explain there's a partial gland abscission that's happening in the diamond glands where the gland kind of breaks open and grows extra growth and but there's also like whole gland abscission where you know the gland is done and easily detaches so yeah yeah so the whole gland abscission seems to come between for example the stem and the trichome and maybe some of the cellular walls and secretary vesicle walls that it has at the bottom. And that can either be in the work that you've been doing and investigating photographically, either thin neck or weak neck. There's two different traits there. And then the partial, yeah. the partial abscission then is more Imagine a trichome with like a little extra head coming out of it, the top of it or whatever. And it's like you said, it's almost like cells creating other cells. Is is that about right? Yeah, totally. Um, just to like add on the, the thin neck, it is kind of like more common. Like GMO seems to have it. it just the cells, the way they grow and the stalk grows, it will just kind of like taper towards the gland. So it's just slightly different. It's not like the abscission type of weakening where it's just going to completely fall off, but it still is a good washing trichome because of just the connection point is weak because of the sheer anatomy of the stock. Okay. So, you know, like that's why, yeah, it's like thin neck is just like a little bit different than weak neck, but they're both good for washing and... I guess what I would say also is that with like weak neck, it only takes like three minutes, maybe in the wash. And you're like, man, that's done. It's super milky. And or yeah, with weak neck. And then with thin neck, it may take like a little bit longer, like a kind of more of a normal wash length. But you're still going to get a really clean separation. And they're also usually the stalks are shorter. 
Yeah, I believe going through your post, I saw one of your genetics. Maybe it was the Jomo that you said that, like they, the variations, the the phenotypes, they had both, and you're like, so basically, like either way, they're going to make good water hash, but it's just depending then on what other growth characteristics you may be looking for, including height and whatnot. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. We had identified that with macro photography that the, the GMO has this kind of thin neck. I mean, it, it's already well-known washer, so it's not like this is any extraordinary finding, but yeah, we, we took a close look and we're like, you know, that's not weak neck. It's a little different. It's doing something different. And then we did take more photos and go, yep, you know, it could go either way, but no, it doesn't really matter. So you're going to get a washer. You're either going to go a thin neck or a weak neck washer. So yeah, kind of apples and oranges, but still the fruits, I guess. So the weak neck in this case, you would have to say would be like the ideal one, because this is the one that you're saying in three minutes, you're, you're practically kind of done with that pool. Um, yeah, I mean, it is really what we've been continuously trying to like fold in to our breeding for the like cleanliness of the wash and just the ease and, you know, getting a lot of like feedback from people being like, this is like the best, you know, and we got like the most ever, you know, a lot of it, like I've been wanting to go into like, just like. And I'm sure people have brought this up before, like, you know, return numbers are really focused on and we also just start to kind of like go into like grams per square meter and the amount of time it takes. And it it just seems like our plants in general these days are like producing so much more to wash that simple return numbers aren't, you know, there's just kind of a limited way of looking at things really because... You know, it's, it's like I've always, I'm always trying to say like, okay, we're going to think apples here. Like this plant's growing bigger apples. It's growing them faster. You know, it's going to get more, more applesauce in the same amount of time as this other one over here. But if we were to go weigh this tree and weigh that tree and see, oh, okay, this one, they both are giving us like the same amount of return by weight. Well, it's like, that's just, you know, that's once this tree's smaller. So, you know, like that's not how we should be. I guess, you know, doing our equation, paying attention to things, really, it seems very limited. So on the weak neck ones, you were saying you can actually see the trichome sometimes shrivel on the stock. Does that change how, for example, going back to when you pull your trichomes, when you do that, do you do that a little earlier, for example, in the weak neck ones, if they're tending to kind of like phase themselves out when they're ready? Yeah, the plant is definitely kind of saying i'm done it seems to go back to the sugar coat which is a real kind of quick flowering plant and also why we wanted to like fold it back in with gmo or in in jomo and everything just taking forever people being like how's the flowering time what's the flowering time it's like okay well we're gonna like you know bring sugar coat back and shorten this up and yeah, it's it's definitely telling you like I'm done. You can you can see it. It will happen pretty quickly. That all of a sudden the trichomes just just start turning an amber. You know, they 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 were like milky. The whole thing was milky white covered, and then it's like okay, it's it's time. We better, we need to put it in the freezer. And yeah, definitely one of the nice parts about making hash is you can just be like, this is it, freezer. 
in your eyes at this point, what's an ideal amount of flowering time for something that's still able to produce a good amount of hash? Ideal amount of flower. I mean, typically, I I would rather it be as fast as possible. You know, like if we're going to run a race and get a huge plant in 50 days that is done, then yeah, let's do that because we're going to turn that room over and be able to start and go again. But, you know, it does seem like a lot of extract companies are kind of like going, oh, it's done. You know, and kind of like pulling stuff early. And yeah, there's the whole trend for like, you know, really clear and light colored rosin. And, you know, like the the, those disc cells that are in the base of the gland that turn amber, they have flavor. They've got esters and stuff. And the flavors are different. If those cells are there or they're not, like if you're filtering those cells out or if you're, you know, just not letting them get amber, like you're going to have a a different flavor at the end. And it's just, it's not completely, you know, the more we look into it, it's not completely just like cannabinoids and terpenes. There are all of these volatile sulfuric compounds and different methyl compounds that are very uh, like a flavorful and present and like account for like the the overall flavor that you're getting that just terpenes doesn't explain you know and so yeah i think that there really is something to be said for like hash being whole gland you know like it is the whole gland it is the unadulterated gland and it is a very like true representation of the plant. And sometimes with rosin, you can kind of get more of like a rosin in general flavor, and it could, the flavors can be a little bit more muted. And yeah, I mean, hash is just hash is where it's at. How about effect? For you, is there a difference between smoking hash and smoking rosin? Yeah, for sure. Just way more enjoyable to me, and even the like the effects of like how my lungs feel with rosin compared to hash. It's kind of amazing because sometimes I'll go through a little like, all right, I'm gonna do rosin for a while, and then I'm like, oh, like what's going on, you know? And it's just you know, I, sometimes I'll like, oh, okay, it's that or whatever and then it'll just time and time again the rosin just not the not as there as the hash is just not just not there not, not as flavorful not as powerful would you say in regards to the lungs it's a little bit more of an irritant um yeah just like i it feels i mean i don't know we get like blasted for this one but like my lungs feel like a little less healthy when I smoke rosin, I guess, you know, like I just kind of feel it in my chest a little more pretty active having to do all this stuff in the garden. You can just kind of like tell, you know, like I'm also trying to work out and stay healthy. And yeah, like hash just seems to somehow not bother my, my lungs as much or, or even my throat, you know, which is, which is odd to me. It's like, this is, Practically the same, 
but it's just a little bit more standardized and a little bit more like isolated and refined and all of a sudden it's really changed my perception in the loop. So I think I saw recently you post something about before your mentality was full melt or bust when it came to making genetics. Is rosin something that you're starting to take more into consideration as you continue your journey? Yeah, I think that, you know, like just with the way uh, the whole scene is moving, uh, really to me, it was more of like, we were breeding for hash was kind of like, well, I wanted six star, you know, I wanted six star and like roasted lemons is a good example of this. Like uh, it's pink lemonade, uh, Baker's dozen. And it had some like longer stocks, you know, and, but it was super flavorful from the pink lemonade. Uh, we were just like, you know, like the returns were kind of normal. Like, yeah, it produced a bunch of weight, but like, you know, everyone was very focused on percentages at the time. And it was like three and a half, maybe 4%. And it was like, okay, so it's not melting. It's got these long stocks. And yeah, I just, I want to release like full melt genetics. Like that's what I'm going for here. And looking back, like we, we kind of like gave it away you know, in little like freebie packs. And we've got the feedback of people being like, dude, this is fire. It's got this like creamy lemon that you like don't normally get. It's not harsh. And it's kind of like a little bit of vanilla and it's just like extremely enjoyable, kind of doughy and like not normal lemon flavor. And why'd you guys not release it? Like it's great rosin and people give us the rosin that they made. And it's like, it is, you know? And so, yeah, now we're kind of just like rethinking strains like that, or like Turby Hut. Like, I would say, like, just just not the melt that melty, and but it makes fire rosin, and like, I guess just since I was so focused on hash and just my, it's like hash is better to me. I like, I was like, okay, Turby Hut's like, you know, better for flour when I really should have been like, okay, it's like better for rosin. You know, it's it's got a lot of flavor. And, you know, that is one of those things that I'm not like totally, you know, I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around. Sometimes strains with longer stocks seem to have like more terpenes or just like a little wetter terpenes, I guess. But, you know, I've been like, I have this, I haven't posted this photo. It's like a close up I've been trying to make sense of where it's recent. It's from Jomo. Like, you know, sometimes you can see like oil like on the gland, like on the, 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 you know, it's like a little dot, but every once in a while you'll see like a little cup, some dots on the stock, right? On the, and it like has never really been like that big of a deal. But this, I'm starting to be like, oh wow, look at this photo. And it's like all these secretions on like the stock of the gland and, you know, everything I know about how glands work doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm trying to kind of like take the deep dive on non-glandular trichomes or just like what's in the stock of a trichome. What could it possibly be secreting? You know, what could this, what could this be? And I've gotten to the point where it's like plant sugars, like uh, stuff that 
comes up to the gland or flavonoids or phenols. Like there's a lot of chemicals, but they're all just kind of precursors and have a mild amount of flavor. Like they could, they could, stock could have flavor, I guess is what I'm getting at, but not like ideal flavor. It's, it's very bitter and most of the good esters and volatile sulfuric compounds and terpenes are going to be in the gland. But yeah, just I'm always kind of like going back and forth. I'm like, am I sure? Am I sure that the, the glands don't have any kind of like entourage effect? Because this looks weird, this photo. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, man. I mean, it's something that hopefully over time, people like yourselves and others will, will help us all figure out, see what's going on there. And I think that, you know, again, going back to having photography be a big part of your toolkit is, is pretty cool. I wanted to ask you a little bit about a term that I've seen you use TGL or total gland length and tell us what that, you know, refers to and, and what it possibly means to you. Uh, yeah, totally. So we are just trying to find a way to quantify with a, a photo, like how many glands and how, like how potent it is pretty much. And, and to take away, it's kind of a lot like the grams per square meter thing, like take away the variables and bring all the variables into the equation of trichome density. You know, it's like try, there's there's the size, there's gland size. So we would like this is something we would do if we have like a couple phenos that like the test washes look similar and they look pretty similar. There, you know, and like we're having a hard time deciding. Can't actually go and wash all these plants, and you know, so. We need to find a way to figure out how, like, is this one, and then that's kind of like another thing we do with the microscopes. Like, does this have the weak neck tray and stuff like that? We can check it off. So total gland length is just like the average gland size. So we're going to factor that in and it's a 5X photo. So like a, a five times photo. And then we will use the Count Things app to, you know, count the amount of glands that are in the photo. So it's a fixed ratio, you know, it starts to be like, these are just like techniques I've seen in scientific articles and been like, I can do that. You know, like they're doing the exact same thing. They're counting how many glands are in this fixed space and they're like trying to figure out potency. And even like there are some products that just like use the refraction of trichomes and they bounce light back and they kind of like give you a potency guesstimate, you know, a little handheld product. Like that's all kind of the same idea, but you know, we're, how potent, how dense they are the trichomes. And it doesn't, it's not just how big they are. It's how uh, the total gland amount that we're getting in this photo yeah and how important do you think it's been kind of focusing on this aspect of density and not only just like the um the amounts of trichomes yeah i mean it's definitely good because it can be difficult to just like use your own eye and not have like a bias to um, like whatever the purpleness below or the way that the photo is kind of like lit or whatever, just 
it, it takes away all of that or even just you know how you feel about the like it's like we're, we're, we're gonna get some numbers here and you can be like yeah like and what we've been doing is like we'll take photos and we'll wash that nug like we'll do a test jar of that that flower and then take a photo of the you know test jar and just be able to like compare all of this information and look and go okay so this one that had the weak neck that had this you know the total gland this this like a very dense trichome uh you know looked like this and the wash is that you know it that's the one you can kind of like start to make sense of it all really just the the washes and the photos can, can go together yeah it's interesting that you know obviously test washing is a relatively i would say common thing nowadays but to then take that material photograph it and then have that also be factored into your data in these comparison points is interesting I think that like Sugar Shack was the first time we started to dive deep and it was, a lot of them were very similar and it was hard to pick, you know, I don't know which one is, is the winner. And then we've just kind of continuously been like building and trying to find ways like, like recently, like the low tip guys, they've got a little like test washer jar thing that they're trying to do. And I was like, okay, I need that because it's going to be more standardized, you know, than me shaking it. And they, you know, didn't work. It's not quite outweigh for them, but I'm like, I still got to do that. So I, I get like a, a food mixer. I'm like, all right, whisk. I'm a whisk guy, food mixer and a wix on low and a certain amount of time. And we're like getting a more standardized scientific test wash you know and anyway i can kind of rethink the way that the methods that we use like that's how i got to the west tech like i i just was like uh, you know this paddle like is very blunt and i'm not going to just rely on the movement of the water and the ice to break the gland up like you, you can the tool can break the the gland apart also and with stack is really nice. It's very easy compared to, to moving stuff around with a big paddle. Is that what you're exclusively using now is the whisk? Yeah. I mean, I still hand wash. Yeah. I just pretty much always use the whisk uh, for a long time. I just didn't tell anybody. I guess I think I felt weird about it or something. I don't And then after a while, I was like, you know... I've done the numbers and it's better, like at least for me. And it's easier. Like I get better returns that are cleaner and my back doesn't feel as bad as with the paddle. So it's like starting to feel guilty. And I was like, I gotta tell everybody. And I kind of thought that more people would be like, well, this is amazing. But just a few people were like, okay, that, that works for me. Yeah. Different things work for different people, but I think nonetheless, it's like, adding anything you can to the conversation and people's toolkits and allowing people to figure that out for themselves. And if it's working for you, then that's great. Totally. So we've talked a lot about trichomes and regarding this to your particular breeding projects, 
What are other characteristics that you're looking for in plants at this point to continue or further a project? You mentioned, for example, with the diamond glands, it's providing much more biomass than something like the sugar coat. Are bud structures and and people's growing methodologies factoring into what you are looking to continue to work? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, bud structure is something that we're definitely paying attention to, like high surface area, kind of nubby type growth, even just a little airy on the airy side, as long as we can get like more trichomes growing in the space and ready to be washed off like it's going to be better like it's weird you know going for hash is is not the same as like the what we've been kind of standardized and like this is a bud it needs to be dense it needs to be round and all of these things and why it shouldn't be fingery and it shouldn't be airy and it shouldn't look like that and it's like you know we're just it doesn't matter like what the the flower looks like it Actually, it kind of does, really. It needs to be airy, you know? Like, it doesn't matter in that it needs to be dense. Like, it it, it does. If you want to make good hash and have, get, a, like, a nice return, you're going to want a very high surface area. Um, and, you know, the plants are always adapting. You can do many things to, like, you know, get them to be a little bit more airy. Like, you know, you just run the room hotter and... And stuff like that. Like they're or even just like feed it a little bit more nitrogen, you know, then and it will kind of like stretch. And that stretch, you know, is gonna give you a better return. And it's just kind of like going, all right, if I've got control of all these variables, you know, or even if it's your you're in a greenhouse, but if I've got control of some of these variables, I want to push them in a, a favorable direction to making hash and just kind of knowing plants are adaptable like they're constantly adapting even the clones that are super rigid and old they're still adapting and changing yeah i mean you mentioned you know being focused on creating a clean extraction or a clean separation in with your breeding including you know obviously finding trichomes that are suited for that but Again, surface area in this case provides that versus having, you know, maybe big chunky nugs that I've heard, for example, that if you need to break down too much, that plant material that, you know, when you're working those buds, it's almost inevitable that they become part of the uncleanliness of the wash. Yeah, for sure. And even just when you're getting on the inside of those like denser nugs, they are just like the void of trichomes. Like if if they were there, they grew into the other plant material and kind of embedded themselves. And I are just not ready for you to remove them from the plant at all. And yeah, I like the whole airiness of a, and just kind of like how a trichome or how a nug, you know, moves around in the water. You know, like if it's got a little bit of give, like it's just going to let the glands come off much more easily than a dense nug that like they just they burst you know it's too much it's gonna hope be rigid and hold on and then you just broke the gland you know so now that you have so many people running your gear you're obviously running your own gear let's talk a little bit about growing practices 
A, have they changed for you since, for example, coming from Denver and focusing on solventless? And B, do you find people are having better results growing in certain styles uh, with your genetics around the world? Yeah, no, we have not changed much. Like I would maybe we've gotten cleaner, I guess, in Denver, you know, we used to do stuff like spray a lot of, you know, pest management. And we have just like completely gotten away from spraying anything on our plants just for like, you know, okay, that's going to be in the hash. Like, and we've kind of learned like you can just take a really good look at plants and deal with pests in other ways than, you know, we just don't spray. We don't spray anything on the plants. That's, that would be like the only thing that we've changed. But, you know, also like you kind of start to learn to, I guess that to be a little bit cleanlier, more cleanly in the room, not have any, you know, like I could try to tell people who have a greenhouse or whatever, you need to lay something down and trying to get like any bit of the dust away. Like it's all going to get stuck. They're, they're sticky, you know, they are collecting the dust. And if you're walking around and kicking up dust every day, like you're going to have dirty hash, like you you want it to be as clean as possible. Like your the cleanliness of your room is gonna translate into the cleanliness of your hash. Like just fibers, the the towels you use, the it'll show. So out of the people that you've seen growing your gear, have you seen people having success both with salts and soil? Um, yeah, totally. Um, we have. Uh, I guess just like across the board, seeing that uh, our glands are just like the size that we represent. Like I, I've always kind of been curious if it could be our growth style or, you know, I just worried that like people are going to be like, oh, it didn't, uh, these aren't big glands, but yeah, um, d across a wide range of growth styles, indoor, outdoor, organic and synthetic that people are reporting that like, you know, these glands are larger and, you know, I'm getting more hash than I've ever got before. Like, and that's one of the crazy ones when it's like a large garden and that's what they do. They're solventless extractors and they're like, we broke records with, with your jama. Like we, we've never got that much hash in that amount of time. And it's like, okay, we're onto something, you know, and, oh, it dumped in the 120 bag. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it is a genetic trait. It's not just from inputs or our, you know, we're not just like pumping them with CO2 and, you know, like somehow able to magically make the glands bigger for the photos. Like it's, it's a genetic trait and uh, it's, I'm actually like, you know, kind of starting to look into like, if it's polyploid, right? When I, and we kind of talked about that the other day. Polyploid would mean that it has more sets of chromosomes, and you know we're not sure. We don't we don't know. We're we're going to look into it, but there are like several things that kind of point that way. Like we have measured the size of the stomata, which is the the little breathable space at the underneath of the leaf. You know where the plant breathes in and out, pretty much little mouth and opens and closes, 
it's uh, fairly fixed, you know, uh, in size. It doesn't vary, and it's one of the ways to indicate if a plant a plant is polyploid, um, which it just means has more genetic information, pretty much instead of just two sets of chromosomes, it could have three sets of chromosomes or four sets of chromosomes, and it could be like uh, you know just a more genetically adaptable plant. And these plants will grow larger cells and they'll grow faster and they'll grow bigger and they'll be very vigorous. And, you know, it kind of explains all of these things to me. And so, yeah, we're looking into it. We're not totally sure again. And I am not a scientist. I just am constantly looking into these scientific articles. You know, I've been told like uh, Humboldt Seed Co. They've got a new polyploid line that they're about to drop that is supposed to be triploid, which is three sets of chromosomes. And it should be sterile, you know, because of these three sets. It's not, not the correct set. And I've been told that like, you know, you, you can't just like all of a sudden, you know, get to uh, quadploid, which is what you would need to be for your genetics to make viable seeds that aren't sterile. Like it doesn't just jump from diploid, which is two sets, to quadploid. To me, it's like, I read a lot and, you know, kind of, you know, constantly looking into science and what you start to realize is that they don't really know, you know, there it's way more gray area. There aren't absolutes. There's always an exception to the rule. And so I guess I'm just kind of like, you know, holding out possibility. We, it's possible. I'm gonna I'm gonna send it off, and we'll, we'll we'll find out soon. I was kind of hoping, but like there are many things that like uh, like polyploid in like flowers, like a, a daisy can create vasication, which is like a cresting where the daisy kind of like grows wide, and it will happen in cannabis sometimes. But you know, again, people are being like, no, those aren't the same. You know, polyploid and Classification is it's just not that they're not the same. And yeah, and there's also like world world philotaxy, which where like, okay, we have the plant and it's growing, right? And it's splitting off normally into two branches, right? Well, sometimes you can get it to split off the main branch into three branches at one node, right? It looks crazy because it's just very not normal. Like when it goes one branch two branches off, like it's very, and then it alters, right? Well, with this world, world philotaxy, sorry, hard to say, it, it just looks crazy. There's three branches, three leaves growing out from the one point on a stem. And this is kind of also a trait that like, you know, with other species of plants, they're, they're going, hey, look, that's polyploid. And, you know, like the... There are people being like, no, that's not, for cannabis, that's not the case. And it's just weird. We're getting it a lot. We're getting this world philotaxy a lot where, you know, people are growing it out. being like, hey, look, I've got three branches growing off. And it, like at the end, like I could be wrong, you know, could not be polyploid. We're still growing super vigorous plants where the stomatas are larger, 30% larger, which is a polyploid sign. And they're doing this world philotaxy where they're going three nodes and three buds off of the stem instead of two. Like it, it looks crazy. Like, and it's just new. It looks like, like future cannabis, 
you know, extremely vigorous, huge towering colas. And uh, you just kind of go, well, to me, it makes sense that it is polyploid. Um, how we got here, I don't know. You know, like I may have inadvertently sourced polyploid genetics just by measuring and looking at trichome size and density because both of those are correlated with polyploid. And there are studies even with like grass. You know, like they did a study about grass being polyploid and the grass has more trichomes on the polyploid and more densely packed on this polyploid genetic and it's more vigorous and it's more adaptable. And it's just, it sounds like our genetics. Like it just sounds like our genetics. Yeah. And beyond that, I think it's interesting that you are obviously doing your research, but also speaking to people like microbiologists and getting their input on these things and like you said you'll have some lab testing but i think it's fascinating that regardless the larger glands which seem to be part of those traits uh definitely seem to be a genetic trait versus necessarily like you said earlier a growth trait yeah yeah uh, totally you know if you are like trying to make hash having bigger apples is better like there are many advantages there are there's less of that cell wall in relation to the amount of goodies within the cell you know the, the membrane part there's less so it makes it meltier that just just that also since the the glands are larger like when you're drying it there's more space in between the you know i think ball pit like dries quicker you know, like, so it washes quicker, dries quicker, and then there's, like, more melty goodness. Like, it, it, it's more applesauce quicker. Like, it's better for, for you to have these large glands that just grow quicker. Yeah, that seems pretty straightforward and logical to me. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I mean, sometimes I'll get some pushback, especially, like, on the like long stock and just like gland size. Like there would sometimes studies will kind of equate how capitate Cecile glands, the ones that are really short and don't have a stock, but they're kind of similar size to the capitate stock glands are less potent than the stocked ones and be like, oh, well, you know what? That means that all the long stocks, the longer the stock, the, the better. Like they start to just like make these like generalizations and it's like, no, those are like completely different trichomes. You you can't, you can't go, oh, okay. Cause this one that's got a stock is more potent. That means the longer the stock, the more potent because, you know, I can show you this photo where they're the same size, you know, like the, the gland's the same size. And just from my experience, like it will rarely be when like it does happen, but rarely the gland will get bigger as the stock gets bigger. Like it usually just kind of continues to elongate through the past like three weeks. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I feel like this is a good time for a second smoke break. You done? Yeah, totally. Okay, sounds good. I want to take a moment to thank every person that makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 59 with Kale of Farmhouse Studio and to give a shout out to some of our top contributors, including Savvy Terps, The Handicap Locks, Resin Reserve in Michigan, Garland in DC, 
Nick the intern, Solventless AF, Kevin of Lifted and Dina, the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Meltwalkie J, David of Rosin Evolution, the real cannabis Chris, and Turp Wizard. We appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. So let's go back to a conversation that you and I were having personally at the smoking jacket in talking about micron ranges. And I think it maybe came from you giving me a jar or something. And I was just, we were talking about, you know, people marking certain micron ranges and we were talking about the 149 to 90. Can you expand on your thoughts? Because you had some interesting ones, if I remember correctly. Yeah, totally. Um, well, first of all, to me, it's like the, the bag is the micron. That's the size of the whole. That's how, you know, like it's like the sieve. We're going to measure the size of the whole. So like the 90 bag, to me, in my brain, the 90 micron size trichomes are going to fall through that bag. So you're not, you know, it's it's definitely a real like, okay, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's one micron. Once you start to like think about how, you know, and you're like doing these measurements and you know how big a micron, it's like one micron is like not something we should really be like cared about. And uh, I guess, yeah. So to me, like... <laughs> it would be the the correct way I would be like 120 through 91, you know, and then the next one would be 90 through 71, you know, because the 71 micron gland is going to get caught and not fall through that hole that is 70 microns big. But yeah, it's a real, like, I kind of feel like it's just even unneeded. Like, I I guess I should go with it. But to me, like if it's just more of like, I pulled the 150 bag, I pulled the 90 bag, you know, like bag sizes vary. And they're like, literally they will be different sizes. Like, like sometimes they will be square. Sometimes it'll be a rectangle. Like that's a big difference, you know, and they'll stretch. And so like, I think even just the bag brand matters more than the bag size. Like I have noticed a, a wide difference in like, okay, this used to dump and I know the size of these glands in this bag. And now I'm using this other bag and it has, you know, a different shape of the opening and it's, well, it's just, it's dumping in this bag and yeah, it's very, I guess it just seems like why should, uh, micron, we shouldn't be splitting. We shouldn't really care about. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's splitting hairs at this point, I feel like, but I love these minute little weird details that, you know, people get into and, and you're right. And the reality is that there's a lot of fluctuation, right? Whether it comes from uh, manufacturer, whether it comes from material, whether it comes from aging, stretching, another factor is it being in the water and expanding and you know, contracting. Yeah. So, but I do find it fascinating that, you know, you're like, well, technically, you know, if you have a 90 bag, the 90 micron heads are going through there. So it's actually mm-hmm. 91 and above. Yeah. But when you typically wash, uh, what ranges are, are you keeping or what are you looking for? Especially intriguing, uh, seeing as how you're working on genetics that are, you know, you're measuring and trying to find specific ranges, for example. Yeah, I mean, I've always liked the 120 bag. Um, at this point, I've just gotten to where 
we'll we'll do we'll pull the one fifty bag and then just go to ninety. So kind of a wider range, and you know a lot of guys that are just in the game for making hash or rosin and like trying to you know compete and the smoking jacket they'll pull like a real specific bag like they would probably clean it more one of the reasons that i like to just keep it real standard is just for like numbers and being you know like having a more scientific approach and being able to like control more variables and so that you know just more standardized way of kind of like looking at the hash. It's also why, like when I present it to people, I, yeah, it's the same. That way you can kind of go, okay, you know, if this is all 150 through 90 and this one's like a meltier and this one's not quite like I, you know, it's, it's, I cannot like in any way maneuvering the end result to, it, it just seems yeah, more honest, I guess. In some of these newer projects, are you finding more of larger gland sizes? You know, let's take, for example, the diamond gland. Are you finding more like 120s in any typical pool with that? Um, yeah, we have like just in general been in kind of increasing gland size and we kind of like watched our glands go up. And we're getting to where it's like kind of average to have like a 120 micron gland throughout our genetics. Um, usually when we outbreed, that will get smaller. But like Jomo really did have the biggest gland. It's got the biggest one we've measured is almost 170 microns. But a lot of them were just like on average 150 microns big, which is, you know, just huge. Like it's an, it, And um, like... Kind of going back to the polyploid thing, like it's like a 30% enlargement that you usually cause. So it would be like 90 to 120. That'd be like a 30. So it's just even more of an enlargement of these glands. And what will happen, like what um, a lot of these scientific studies will point to with like the, the stock glands being more potent and therefore stock length equals potency is that there are like more disc cells, like the, the amount of uh, secretory cells at the bottom of the base of a gland can vary. And, um, you know, for like bulbous, it will be less, uh, like four to eight cells. And they look kind of like a little pizza slice, right, at the base. And it looks like a little brain, but you can pick each one of the cells apart and look at them. And you, you can, I can kind of kind of see them now that I know what they look like. There's a a dent and I can kind of go, okay, you know, I can kind of like, wow, that's got a lot. And this one's got less. Right. And it's easier for me to do on my computer. And it's kind of hard for me to show on the phone. But once you understand these larger glands are creating more disc cells at the base, which they're like the, the ones that those like the cannabinoid factory there at the base, this little brain, and having more factory, like you're going to get more complex, like sesquiterpenes, like instead of monoterpenes, which are kind of chemically simple and not very long, you're going to get a, a longer chain sesquiterpene, which is like more difficult to create, you know, because the factory is bigger. And what happens with these sesquiterpenes is they stick around 
on the plant longer because they're longer and they're heavier. And, you know, like it, they can continue to build. It's, it's really crazy. Like they're all different, you know, classes of terpenes and they can get so thick. Like, you know, like the monoterpenes, they're in plants just about everywhere. But like there are, I don't even know, it's much beyond sesquiterpenes to where the it's so thick it becomes the of a latex a latex for tree and like like your your bed like if you're if you have an organic latex bed like you're actually kind of technically laying on terpenes that are just like so thick they don't evaporate and it just kind of stuff like that blows my mind like I, if you really take the deep dive on trichomes they're on like almost all plants, like 90% of green stemmed plants have some kind of trichome and about 30% of those plants have glandulars, that trichomes, you know, and it create terpenes, which is very similar and are creating secondary metabolites that are just different. You know, the, the tomato trichomes are creating just like a different shield that they think works against the bugs and you know, trichomes are hairs in most plants and trichomes are cotton. Like the, the cotton on everybody's walking around in trichomes like that. That kind of blows my mind. Like nobody knows where we're walking around in trichomes. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And very like medicinally valuable. The, the nature knows. Nature knows. And all of these rosemary like i will just take a deep dive i'll be looking at some sage trichomes and just be like i want to know what's going on with non-glandular trichomes and start to try to understand what could be possibly secreting from the stalks of trichomes like what is in a non-glandular trichome and some people are like there are these phenols that are in non-glandular trichomes that we think could be, you know, a pest deterrent. They're bitter and bugs shouldn't like them. And they, yeah, they're like super simple. Like a flavonoid is a phenol and it's a very, you know, the plant can just produce it. It doesn't need the gland to create like a stronger thing. So, but it, they still think that there's a possibility that it has like, you know, anti-pest properties and yeah, I just love kind of nerding out and thinking, okay, so, you know, stocks are non-cellular trichomes, like there's stuff in there that phenols actually are bitter and kind of like have an earthy flavor. So could contribute to an entourage effect slightly. Like, yeah, it's not psychoactive, but you're going to taste it a little bit. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of weird that there are so many variables with the plant one of the new ones that we've been talking about is this methyl compound that is similar to dmt and it has a kind of a mothball kimmy flavor that they it's um indole and sactol and, and they're like they're in gmo and they they're responsible for these chemical flavors and it's not a terpene you know and it, it, it probably responsible for these DMT flavors that you, we see a lot in Jomo, and uh, like any, it's also responsible for savory flavors and even just like 
volatile sulfuric compounds and like tropical flavors coming from you know other places besides terpenes like the terpene profile can be similar but somehow the flavor is different and like there's other stuff going on that we're we're figuring out i think that that is one of the reasons um like whole gland and hash will really like is the best representation of cannabis yeah like you mentioned earlier about one of the strains and how you felt like you know, once you convert it to rosin, there were certain little subtleties of it that you might lose through the hash. So I could see that. And and I think it's really interesting, uh, especially the, the point you touched on, on the methyl compound and how that, you know, could potentially lead to having that, that DMT flavor through cannabis that you do hear about, you know, relatively often nowadays, like you said, especially with a GMO and whatnot. But on that note, I'm curious, I got to see, you know, a good little lineup of some of the genetics that you guys are working on in hash form out in Portland. And I'm curious, is there a certain direction that you guys are leading towards with these terpene profiles and beyond, of course, as we're saying? Yeah, totally. So we, I mean, I, I've always, I guess, been a fan of the more like Kenny OG forward type flavors. I guess that's kind of why Kim D probably does have that methyl compound. Uh, It's kind of got a chemical mothball type flavor. So, you know, it may be just why people like Kim D and we just haven't ever really figured that out. But um, yeah, I, I think that a lot of people breed with focus on flavor and I'm not going to like knock that. But to me, I just see a space, I, I see an opening for like, okay, I can breed or we can breed for this, this gland size and this hash ability and then easily just kind of use your flavor, bring your flavor over or and grab another flavor here from Honey Bananas and, you know, fold it in and make it more washable because sometimes strains that taste really good don't wash really well but you know they continue people can't get away from they continue to just keep i need to have that yeah i we're we're constantly trying to kind of like fold flavors in that we like because we know that they're going to stick around too because we're continuing to like breed and and breed and outbreed so it is it's kind of like uh a gumbo you know you you got to go like all right, all right, it's going to be funky, it's going to be fruity, it's going to be sweet, you know, and, and kind of try to picture, like, how how's it all going to come together? And I do like fruity strains, or we, you know, but I would like there to be, like, a little bit of funk backbone, and that's kind of, like, where we're, where we're at with the, the whole terpenes. Yeah, I would certainly say that from a lot of the profiles that I remember smelling with you and trying with you is that they all had, they were all pretty unique and they did have some kind of like funkiness to them and in different aspects and different regards, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily like a GMO, but there were like some kind of DMT-ish ones and there were some, so like, I find it cool that you're bringing kind of your own uh, little pool of flavors and you know, I'm curious how you decide what to mix that with. You know, you brought up the honey bananas. You and I talked in person about how, you know, you'll 
locally be able to find some really nice cuts that you're able to work with? What's the philosophy behind the breeding? The philosophy behind the breeding, I mean, really, like, we, I guess I've, like, looked quite a bit into, like, dog breeding at the beginning, as uh, because there, there wasn't a whole lot of scientific articles and just information in general about breeding cannabis. Like, you could get some stuff, but it's just lacking and kind of varying. And so, yeah, looked into dog breeding and just the whole... F1, F2, and purebred kind of correlation and how a lot of purebred dogs would have problems arise and would bring out these traits that are unwanted and, you know, create like genetically unstable, you know, like not the best dogs kind of. And like the more they did it, it the, the worse it got. And, it, and I just kind of was like looking at uh, the cannabis community being like F1, F8, F12, you know, and going like, okay, we're we're like doing this, but in just like a different way. And just kind of like understanding uh, genetic bottlenecks and heterosis, you know, like hybrid vigor. Like I, we've always been really like, okay, we hybrid Bigger means that like the more we outbreed and bring new genetics in, the more that the best traits are going to be brought along. You know, that could just be what we're doing, really. Just bringing all these really good traits along and it's making for a super vigorous plant. And we're constantly like not, you know, it's trying to stay away genetically enough to where it brings just the good from the other side because the the farther a plant is genetically from another one you know i seriously used to look on phylos and i would make these like genetic maps like a madman on a board and be like this is over here and this is over there and i want to get as genetically far away from each other and you know it, it people do it but instead of like being like land race or you know, whatever, it's more of just like a genetically different, you know, and it, it works. It really does work. And you, you create a really like adaptable plant that has like, uh, you know, a lot of like, we hear a lot of people being like, man, all the other ones had bugs or PM except for yours, you know, like yours just fared so much better. Or one guy was like, my room got up to 150 degrees. All the plants died except for the sugar shack. It, it, yeah, it looked like it was dead, but it lived, you know, like it survived. And it, I'm amazed, like stuff melted in the room. And this, these plants, which I thought were dead, were going to live. They lived and they, they made some of the greatest, you know, hash. And it was just amazing. That, and it's like, yeah, it, like, it, that's what happens whenever you're, trying to continue like it's everyone's like oh it's a whatever super hybrid poly you know like it, and they're always trying to kind of like talk down on hybridizing and it's like that's what's good you know like it it's good to for dogs you know like it, it, the dogs that are mutts don't have any problems like and that's a living being like yeah, that's an interesting perspective, and for sure, it's interesting to reference 
something outside of cannabis like dogs, for example, to maybe take some look and examples as to what genetics do there. I'm curious, how long have you been working on the genetics and the seed making at this point? I think that we were like five or six years about at this point. I'm not totally sure. At least five. Yeah, it's seems fast, but yeah, tons of fun. I really like breeding and being able to apply all of this stuff I've learned and all these tools I have and kind of like, I, I really do like the cannabis community. I love sharing information and I like further and kind of like <clears throat> inspiring people to be like, oh, okay, there's another way or things we can do with this plan. Like the, the future is like, it's got a lot of possibilities. We can like, let's do some stuff. Let's, let's like do this, you know? And yeah, I, I got a love for the cannabis community and just think that we can, we can all come together. Do you foresee doing this work for a long time? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely my, my thing. And I don't see any plans of stopping. Yeah. It, it's just, I mean, we've been growing for 12 years without stopping. So, you know, like it's just who I am at this point. And, you know, sometimes, you know, earlier today, my mom's like, hey, you got to take a vacation. And it's just like, like I, I'm the, the, the garden is my happy place. And, I, you know, I don't need a vacation. I'm, I'm happy doing this thing. And if I were to leave, I'd be like freaking out. And I mean, yeah, we probably should go on more vacations, but, I yeah I'm super happy doing what we do I, and we're not very super social like we did a lot of partying in Denver I think we we've done a lot we've done our, the, the fish tours we, we've we've kind of done our share of partying we feel comfortable kind of you know being a little more solace and just in our own heads. I guess it feels feels good to be able to be in our own lane and just focus and do a thing. And then at the end, and you do it and you're done, and you're like, look at this. And I did it again. Like So, yeah, happy. Happy to be here. Yeah, that's cool. And funny enough, uh, I believe you guys met on a fish tour. So, you know, the beginning was on the road and now it's, it's the home life. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, we used to be pretty crazy. Um, when Daisy and I first kind of like moved in together, we met, she was in New Jersey, I was in Missouri. She kind of like just went on tour with me and we did the whole fish tour. And then she kind of like lived with me. And it's definitely a crazy way to start a relationship. But yeah, we had tons of fun. Denver was also just tons of fun we had met you know so many people and had great times and just really learned you know it's the hub and couldn't have done it without denver but yeah then we came out here and it was the idea was like oh you know we're gonna get a garden going and be on the rec market and be you know finally do it you can't do that in denver because you need like 
a half million cash down or whatever to like start a business. And then they're just like giving the licenses away in Oregon. They're like, here, you get a license. And so we move up here and, you know, we do it and we get it all going. And it's just not, not a good market. The, the, they oversaturated things and it's just too competitive. It doesn't matter how good it is. Like, we were still able to get in like some of the best shops and they'd put us on the top shelf and make it all fancy. But yeah, it was just like, this isn't, this isn't working with the numbers here. And, uh, you know, so right in the time when everything was just not doing good, we do like Oregon and we like the, the whole culture and the, just the slowness of it. So we'll probably stay and it's really nice that we figured out that we could breed because, you know, the market here wouldn't let us stay. And so now I guess we get to continue cannabis here in Oregon. Yeah, that's cool, man. Let's talk a little bit about freeze drying and some of the posts that you've made in regards to like kind of whipping up some of this melt and what you feel it's doing to the freeze dried hash in comparison to something like air drying. It's just uh, kind of one of those things I've played around with. I guess I used to do like microplane hash. And so I kind of know what it's like in the jar when it greases up and, you know, has just that great look to it. And you can't ever quite get that to happen with like a freeze dryer because all the glands are really intact and it, it dries it out in this kind of like matrix where there's a little bit of space between them and they aren't really like compact and it's just not the same as air drying and you know like even if you're seeding you're gonna bust some glands open or they're kind of compact together enough to where maybe you know like they they start to like break down the cell walls a little and definitely with the microplane like you're slicing it up into tiny little pieces you know all the inners and the outers are in a fine powder and pretty much like i was trying to mimic that type process i kind of just stumbled upon it really it was more of like oh i would have freeze-dried hash and kind of like you know gibby getting into it and i noticed like oh the area right where i was kind of like scooping from that looks like you know, an air dried jar. It looks real clear. And, and so then it's like, okay, I want to whip it. You know, just like move it all around and see if that, and it's like, yep, that does it. You know, like we have, we've broken the grant, the glands open and we've let it all become this like jelly and pool together. And the inner terpenes, cannabinoids can kind of melt like the membranes of the gland, especially if you have terpenes like limonene that act like solvents, it could be more pronounced or less pronounced. But, and then other things that happen too are like the terpenes will kind of, it's like opening a bottle of wine to me. Yeah. Or even just like curing rosin, like, like fresh press and cured rosin. Like it's kind of like that you're, you're able to let the the terpenes open up and sometimes 
you lose some of the like monoterpenes like myrcene and you retain some of these longer chain sesquiterpenes and it just kind of changes the flavor. It also makes it super nice. Like if it's room temp or you've got it in your pocket, you just like scoop some hash out of the jar and junk it in and do it like rosin and not have to flag it, you know, go through that whole flagging. And it's, yeah, it's got a different flavor, just like uh, opaque quartz and with the regular, like there's all these flavors you can get, what temperature you hit it at, what, you know, there's, there's many ways and you could get tons of flavor, a different types of flavor out of like one extract by all these slight things and just exploring that. Yeah, I love stuff like that. Do you feel like when you do that, it affects the char less on the nail, for example? Like, are you getting less char when you're whipping it up than if you were to just leave it as is? Yeah, for sure. And again, it can be drain dependent. Like, you, if you have the more solvent-like terpenes, it can break down those membranes and even just some stalks a little that it becomes way more melty it's it's definitely similar to flagging you know like you're going to do the same thing where you, you spread it all out but if you have certain terpenes you can get it to like cure a little and, and kind of mimic that air dry process which makes it like really melty so yeah what are your thoughts on letting you know hash or in, like you said earlier rosin settle and quote-unquote cure do you feel like Sometimes smoking the product once that has occurred makes it smoother and you're kind of getting rid of some of these harsher terpenes. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, like I can notice that sometimes in like fresh press rosin, if it's like clear tech kind of fresh press, that it will be harsher and there are just more of these like gassy notes that will come kind of like burn your throat that it just can be like a little much even with like limonene you know like if if there's too much of it it can be a little overwhelming and it's just nice to like take the edge off a little and experience the other terpenes that are in there and it's not like the limonene's gone and it's still there yeah i i just enjoy kind of thinking of it in a different way like people open bottles of wine and pour them to oct- you know like that that's a thing they're not just all right it's it's done we pressed it let's consume it is when to me it's like that's harsh you know like that's that's a little bit much like especially with like our rose fuzz like it it can be like almost offensively gassy rose that is like <laughs> you know but like if you just wait a minute on the rosin or even just you know whip it and let it open up a little it's not so in your face and there's other like lavender and geranium notes that kind of pop out and yeah just seems to be more enjoyable lash marsh on the the throat yeah that makes sense And, and i do find that sometimes especially like you mentioned earlier uh, going sometimes from fresh press to cured, which I don't get a ton of experience with that. But, you know, seeing that process 
And like you said, also going from strain to strain, uh, some of it doing more than others, depending on the terpenes present, as you said. So it's all kind of this this fine dance. And I don't think that there's like a, a set you know, answer, but I certainly feel that sometimes once they settle down, they do highlight other ones. And some of that harshness can be kind of like that edge can be taken off a little. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's just such a large mix, even like, you know, I keep kind of being like terpenes, but it's really just like aroma, you know, like we keep kind of, there's all of these flavors. And yeah, like if we have this old sulfuric compound and the terpenes, it's like you can really start to notice a difference, like stuff can overwhelm. And then later, it's just a better blend. Well, Kale, I appreciate you hanging out with me this long, man. I'll start kind of winding it down, shooting questions all over the place. Yeah, no worries. Is there a strain that you maybe have run at some point or have smoked at some point that you aren't able to get a hold of that you would love to kind of build on or you know use as a building block for your genetics? You know, not really. The only thing that kind of comes to mind is I used to see this like blueberry muffin, but it is just kind of a hard clone to kind of pin down because there's a lot of blueberry muffins and different versions of it. And so I've kind of just like given up on it. We used to have a strain in Denver that we lost that, you know, I kind of know of, but, you know, at the same time, I think I'm just more excited about like what we're making, you know, like we're, we're like right in the middle or at the end, I guess, of a testing around for the diamond glance line. And so we haven't got quite to get in there, but like you can see that it's like, whoa you know like we we did it like what's what's going on in here like just crazy growth and so yeah i'm i'm always excited to see like okay well well what's how are these going to test wash and how you know we've we've just been getting started on taking photos and everything so well and typically how long is a testing round for a particular genetic so like you know from the start of popping beans to the finish of like taking photos and doing all the test wash washes probably like five months it takes almost and we've tried to like make it quicker but with all of the like stuff we're doing and then kind of like detailed looking it's just like you know like it takes quite a bit of time like last drop i was working or we were working for 90 days for like 10 hour days non-stop like like we're it's just the two of us you know we're we're doing all of this you know packaging what whatever like it's just us and the photos and the test wash and to get everything ready for the drop on the website and sometimes i'm like i don't know how we do all this stuff but we do it and I, i'm also like well you know you're like making yourself do this stuff like you're, you're the boss and but like i want to make a catalog and send it out 
and have it be detailed with photos. And I want the website to have a bunch of photos and information because that it's like it really does go back to like dog breeding. Like I want to be transparent. That's what the dog breeders do. Like here's the dad, here's the mom. Hey, we've done this. We feed them this. We did, you know. And they're like extremely like telling. And then the cannabis community is just like a photo of words and no information about the flavor or anything. Like oh, yield varies, and you know. And it's just like we could be doing way better you know like <laughs> you know we we know that this one yielded more than this one this one like it's not that hard to to let people know and yeah i like being honest i also like to, to just be able to share our work you mentioned earlier you feel like the correct thing to be looking at is grams per square meter versus return numbers and you talked a little bit about it, but I was hoping that you could expand upon that. And beyond that, talk to us what that looks like in regards to the genetics that you're producing and what you're seeing in other people's gardens at this point. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's just a more complete way to look at uh, overall yield. If any other industry would be factoring it in, you know, it, it, it the it's the amount it's, it turns into the amount of hash you have at the end of the day per space and time, and like that's just what we are confined to. We have time, and we have a certain amount of space, square feet. Like people, you can't, you don't have unlimited square feet at a grow, and you don't have unlimited time. There's a certain amount of time you need to get stuff done within that time and space that you have, and so you can. It's just a much better way to look at it. And with, you know, that's just goes back to like our genetics being very vigorous and growing quickly and of course just growing larger, faster. Like if stuff just is able to produce more quicker, you're just, it's, uh, it's better, you know, like you're not going to, you can't fight it. Like you can be like, oh, this thing dumped. I got 8%, but if it only makes two ounces, you know, like it's a really limited way of looking at how good a plant is for hash. And we should kind of start to look at the whole, the big picture. Really, it's like, okay, so if the cells are bigger and a plant grows bigger, then the kind of the return numbers are going to be similar. You know, like the tree is going to make kind of a similar amount of apples by weight, you know, than the smaller tree, right around 6%, like, or whatever percent. It's just by weight. So we're really kind of going, okay, it's if it grows bigger and it dumps, then you've really got a winner. And that's what we've been kind of trying to do. More biomass is going to mean more hash. And it, it works, you know, like it works. You've described your breeding method as the basket weaving method. What does that refer to? Uh, yeah, I don't really know why I came up with that. Daisy knits. She's a knitter. I don't know how that somehow like added into my psyche, but I was just trying to kind of 
explain in my head that goes back to a lot whenever I was like trying to separate genetics to breed super vigorous plants by having, you know, like the genetics be so different that the hybrid vigor is higher. Like that's what, it's a heterosity score pretty much. And so I would kind of like just put them on a board and separate them. And then, so I was doing it for our own genetics and I'm also, you know, wanting to stay away from genetic bottlenecks because of the dog breeding thing. And so I'm going, okay, we got to wait, you know, you got to, you got to kind of like hold on to this and bring it back in later. And to me, it just became like, okay, that's like basket weaving, you know, like this one just takes a break. It stays over here. And then we're going to fold it back in later. And, you know, it's a lot like what we just did with Jomo and sugarcoat. Like sugarcoat is like a grandpa of Jomo because I go to sugarcoat, sugar shack, then Jomo. And we're, so we're far enough away. Like I, I'm far enough away where I feel like we can fold it back in genetically and not have any problems arise from it just being kind of like inbred, you know? So the bottlenecking that you've referenced, you feel would become maybe more prominent if you weren't doing this holding off this kind of weaving method and you're just going like back to back to back to like the same ones or introducing same ones, folding them, as you've said. Yeah, exactly. Genetic bottleneck. <clears throat> the idea is just like the, the gene pool continues to get smaller and smaller and stuff kind of comes out that is recessive. Recessive unwanted traits will kind of pop up way more readily. If you kind of just like, okay, so you're looking at it that way. So if you let's go the other way with it, that's let's go the other way. What happens if we continue to outbreed and outbreed and outbreed, but then at the same time, also kind of like fold the genetics back it is also a way to steer it, right? So we're going to be able to kind of do, make, be, make selections, you know, bring the weak neck trade along or bring short stocks along without incurring the genetic bottlenecking of F1, F2, F3. You know, it, it's just, it, yeah, it's a way to kind of have your cake and eat it too, I guess. Like you get to steer it, but you also get to make a super vigorous plant. Are you guys working or have worked on feminices at all? No, we have just been rags and, you know, what, never mess with feminized seeds. I just kind of think for like the community as a whole that providing uh, reg genetics is better. And, uh, you know, we encourage breeding with our genetics. I'm not, uh, you know, if, it, if we release it, you can breed with it. There's males. Like you can use those, those, we want those to be, it's kind of how I'm, you know, we want the community to evolve together. And yeah, I, I would much rather provide good breeding stock because like fems are kind of viewed as like, well, you don't know. And sometimes stuff happens when you breed with just a fem and or 
And sometimes when you do the femme reverse and it doesn't work out so well and you know you didn't quite do it right and you know yeah a lot of people have figured stuff out but i think that just like for the longevity of cannabis genetics that i view just like the kind of natural reading as better and you will have a more stable diverse and adaptable genetics from just regs it's the natural way we don't need to genetically kind of modify like it is kind of a genetic modification femming like i don't know people are probably going to be upset but like you are kind of tricking it and it's it's a slight genetic modification to be like i want to have female only pollen you tricked it you hormonally tricked it a little like i don't want to talk i'm not talking down on fems but i would rather just go the natural route What's something that you enjoy to do outside of cannabis since, you know, obviously your life is very mm-hmm. surrounded by it? I, I had play bass. I've played bass for, I don't know how long, 16 years or something. You know, it's just a hobby, but it's definitely something I enjoy. I, I also uh, have a motorcycle. That's also something I enjoy working on. It's an older motorcycle. So yeah, kind of uh, just little things. I've been growing cactus lately as kind of a new hobby, which is just a fun way to get growing back as like a hobby and less as a business. And I kind of have this space that's my own again, you know, because at this point breeding is very us. Yeah, we we'll go on hikes and we've got dogs and yeah, we we live a pretty simple life and just kind of do our thing. Cool. If you had to name three people who have influenced your hash career, maybe hash vision, or maybe vision on hash, who would those be? I mean, definitely Nick T. Yeah. Hey, I can't think of much else. I, you know, Bubble Man always, like, I, you know, got the bubble bags and watched his Bubble Man videos. Also, but also Frenchie, too. Like, I never really took Frenchie's class, but he was one of the people that was like, hey, dude, uh, that's not weak neck. That's an abscission. Here, check out this scientific article. And he, you know, pointed me in the right direction that really like clicked and I started going down the scientific article path and yeah, never, never met Frenchie, but like just a little internet interaction and he like, he got me going. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And I think that's the first place that I ever heard the word abscission you know, in regards to cannabis. And he used to always talk about like the fruit falling off the tree and, you know, the abscission points and whatnot. So that that set you on your path as well. So that's pretty cool and interesting. Final question. If you could hear from someone on the podcast who hasn't been on, who would it be? That's going to be a tough one. I mean, I guess I'll just you know, kind of 
drop a little bit of my crew here and be like, you know, bubble mama, because she's been running a lot of our genetics and getting us a lot of info back kind of part of the, the Portland scene here. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it should be interesting. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you sharing and I appreciate you hanging out with me. I had a good time, man. I'm glad that we finally were able to make this happen. And, you know, like I said, I've been looking forward to it. So I felt like overall, you know, it was, it was a good time. I hope you had a good time as well. You can follow Kale on Instagram at Shwale, that's S-H-W-A-L-E, at farmhouse underscore studio with a zero, and as well as Shwale.com. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we sign off, dude? Uh, no, dude, but thank you for having me. Much appreciated letting me tell my story and uh, get in contact with your, your great audience, these people I need to get in contact with, so much appreciated. Yeah, likewise, man. Thank you for coming on. Uh, shout out to you and to Daisy. And I hope wish you guys the best in, in your work. And I hope, you know, I look forward to catching up with you in the future, man. And for anyone sure. that put us this long, we appreciate you and we'll catch you next time. Welcome to this additional segment of the Hashishin. I'm here with Kale of Shwale or Farmhouse Studio. Welcome back, dude. How are you? I'm doing great. Super glad to be here. Yeah, likewise. Great to have you. It's been a few weeks since we had our original interview and I've been traveling a bit and you've been working and a lot of things have been discussed and been going on. So uh, I figured it'd be nice to have you back and, and clarify a few points, including when we talked about photography. You know, we've talked about photography being a tool for you in your breathing and outside of that as a tool, like you said, uh, when you were in Denver of just being able to make, you know, ends meet at that point. So how do you see uh, photography more specifically contributing to your work at this point? First, just thanks for giving me the opportunity to kind of, you know, come back and clarify a few things. As far as photography as a tool, we, you know, use microscopes in a way that like scientists do. And it really kind of all started with sugar coat and I'm like walking around the garden and I just see this one trichome kind of poking off a leaf waving at me and I'm like that's odd like what's going on with this guy it looks huge why you know what is the deal and I get a scope and look at it and go yeah something's going on so I cut it off right away you know go take it into the studio get the microscope at it and start looking at it and realize wow these are these are three glands growing on one stalk and you can see the difference in milky and amber and clear on this one stalk. And, you know, at first I was kind of trying to explain it as, well, it must be other glands that have fallen off. You know, this has got the weak neck trait. It must be other glands. But you normally, whenever you another gland has fallen off and hits and sticks to a gland, you can see like the... Uh, secretory cells at the bottom. You can see kind of where it normally would be connected. All of these are arranged in a perfect little triangle where they're all stuck together. It's like it would have had to magically fallen twice and with different milkiness or different, you know, ripeness. Uh, so it just didn't kind of add up. And I was like looking around that one photo and you could see other odd glands. There's many other ones that are you know, kind of blurry, not the best to show people, but I can see 
hey, there's something going on here. And so we, you know, posted about it and said, hey, maybe this is a, a trait we can pass on. We weren't sure. You know, we thought it could just be an odd occurrence happening. So just being able to get a close look right when we want to has really helped us. Like the, an actual microscopic photo is much different than looking through a scope. You can see in a detail, you can see the way the gland cuticle kind of wrinkles and tell that it is a gland and stuff like that. And so pretty much we have continued to do that. You know, like we've used microscopes to identify the weak neck trait. And, you know, when I first was going out, I thought it looked different. We found out it kind of looks like a wrinkled, shriveled gland where it's not connected to the stalk anymore. And so after we figured out what it looked like, we could continue to identify it on different plants and make selections based on that trait. And it's just like continuously doing it. I'm always going, that looks, could that have it? Oh, let's go take a look. And being able to myself to get a close look with a microscope of whatever, you know, the gland size, like we've proved weak neck. We've also proved that gland size is a genetic trait that can be manipulated. Pretty much the, the glands are genetic. They, you know, they're, they are the, the way that they are because of the genetic blueprint that they've been given. And our use of microscopes has been able to help us further understand the way that trichomes are, are traits of genetics. So it goes on, right? You know, we took sugar coat and we bred it with sugar shack. And for the most part, the flower just got larger. Like we, we got a, a chunkier flower. The glands were kind of dense. And, but every once in a while, you could see the same kind of partial gland abscission where it's a gland is growing an extra little gland on top. Right. But it wasn't like all the time. It was it was a rare trait. And so, you know, we continued and then from Sugarcoat, we created Jomo. And that was really a exercise in enlarging the glands. And we were able to do that. We could measure before with the microscope, you know, with our calibrated ruler and we could measure after and go, wow, we got up to 170 as our largest. And on average, we're at 150, which is larger than the GMO trichomes that we've measured. So, you know, a lot of people are, oh, it's just like piggybacking off of GMO. Like, no, we made a selection and that selection improved the gland size. So then after that, we got Jomo. And on our Jomo line, two stood out. Jomo the Hut, which was kind of a back cross with Turpy Hut, and Diamond Glands, which is sugar coat. Again, we've crossed Jomo with Sugarcoat to create diamond glands. So Sugarcoat is the one that had the three glands and the weak neck trait. And on those two, we would see the same exact partial gland abscission. You know, it wasn't in a different spot. It had a point and was like kind of squished down to the main cuticle. And it just started to become more obvious that this was a trait that we have selectively bred and passed on. Um, especially with Jomo the Hut, you could see on 
a 5X photo mini glands that were stretching or growing another thing and, and started to look odd. And it just became very apparent. And, you know, all along the line, I've been showing people that showed the people in 2020. I showed them last year, whenever we noticed these things on diamond glands and Joma the Hut, like we held back diamond glands because we noticed it so much. And we're like, oh, you know, we release our stuff and people breed with it, which, you know, we encourage. We like people. We want people to have access to regs and males. And we think everyone should be able to breed. But we held diamond glands back because it was a special one. And we were we were seeing a lot of these partial gland abscissions. And now I'm able to, you know, look at all of these diamond glands hybrids and kind of across the board, see the same multi-gland trichomes that have been there since sugarcoat. And that is one of the kind of defining moments of like, okay, this is a genetic trait that we have been able to select for because we've been getting such a close look for so long. Would you say that that trait could be possibly considered a mutation of sorts? Yeah. So it is a mutation and you have to kind of go over there's a mutations and there are adaptations and all adaptations are a mutation of some kind, but uh, not all mutations are adaptations. It kind of gets to be tricky at this point. So, you know, like a leaf can split and make an extra fan or, or something and that's a mutation, but if it's not like helping the plant in a, in some way, then it wouldn't be considered an adaptation. And since these these glands are becoming more protective for the plant, that pushes it over into the adaptation range, and it, you it starts to become you know something better for the plant. And you know I can point to this in other plants doing the same thing and. The scientists are like, yeah, that's an adaptation. The plant is becoming more protective. So it's, it's better. It's, it, it is a mutation, but it's also considered an adaptation because it's better for the plant to survive. Going to a point that you brought up a little earlier when you were explaining that you saw something unique on the sugar coat and that unique aspect of it was that there were this three-headed trichome coming off one stock and you specified that they were at different points of maturity and you were able to see that they were all one part of the discussions have been that have been going on in the past several weeks is some people claiming that no this is actually instead just other loose trichomes kind of coming together and like you said earlier falling on on another what makes you so sure that that isn't the case and that the case is this being a genetic trait? Like I was saying, pretty much the gland would have had to fall as though the connection of the stalk hit the other gland perfectly and kind of hit it. Like normally when you see a gland fall off, you can, you can see this underside and there's like a little bit of like a hole and you can tell like, oh, that is where the 
stipe and the basal cell connect and the secretory cells and you know there's scientific articles going look here it is that's the hole and it's it's fallen off and so just beyond that being able to also look around the rest of that image and see like one of them one of the, it was like kind of a normal gland but it had three little growths off to the side you know kind of I don't even know, like a gobstopper or something like that. They, they were smaller little growths off, not, not three individual glands. Or on another one, it, it looked like the partial abscission little helmet thing on the top with points, you know, and you kind of start to go, okay, well, that's not a gland, you know, like there's no way that this little semicircle could be a gland that fell off. And so it's just all of this kind of supporting evidence I mean, I was still unsure, you know, it is hard to go, hey, this is a new thing. And I was reserved in making that statement that these are, you know, three glands growing on one stock. But once I was able to like fully grasp the situation, I was like, okay, there's just the only way to explain this is that it's three glands growing off of one stock. And, you know, I had seen before that, you know, I kind of got into tomato trichomes in 2016 because of their multi-gland. Like that, that is just, uh, you know, one of those like, ooh, I want cannabis trichomes to do this. Why, you know, why can't we do this? And if I look into tomato trichomes and see that they evolved from a single gland into two, then into four, you can kind of go, oh, well, that can happen with cannabis. Like it, it's not only reserved to tomato trichomes, you know, the plants are similar and, and what they're doing and how they're adapting. Oh, and it's just uh, aligning with stuff that's already happening in nature. Is part of your evidence or confirmation coming from seeing more of these types of trichomes in these genetics via the photographs for example it's not just one trichome on this one plant it's like multiple maybe tens hundreds i don't know thousands on the plant yeah for sure that's that's definitely one of the things that makes me confident that that it is a genetic trait that we've been able to selectively breed for you know whenever we first noticed it on sugar coat it was pretty rare it would happen like maybe five percent of the time or less and once we got up to like jomo the hut it started to happen like maybe five or ten percent of the time depending on the genetic the genotype and now we're you know since we kind of back crossed with sugar coat and the diamond glands and are passing on we're seeing it even more and so yeah it is like a whole body of work and even there are photos that just don't make Instagram that I get to see or, you know, the wider version of photos where I get to see other stuff going on that, you know, it just looks a little blurry, but I can put it all together and go, okay, so it's, it's been going, doing it at some times now it's doing it a little bit more and now it's doing it even more. And it's not like I'm saying all of our glands do this, you know, it's not, not even close to all it's, a fraction of them but that fraction is getting larger through selective breeding and yeah that definitely makes me confident that we're actually doing a thing that it already exists within nature 
So outside of the the photographic images and seeing more of an occurrence in this, what can you say is like your specific basis for being so sure that this is a genetic trait? Okay, so um, we're going to kind of try to talk about how glands work at this point. And I want to make the analogy of the gland as a thick rubber ball. And there's a tube at the bottom of this ball that is keeping pressure, is, is supplying sugar water to the ball, right? And inside the ball, there's a little tiny factory that's turning that sugar water that's into a thick molasses. And it's kind of a slow factory. It's not extremely fast, but the tube being connected and supplying stuff and taking stuff out helps keep the gland at pressure and smooth and taut and plump, right? Once it disconnects and senesces, the gland wrinkles and just starts to deflate because it can no longer produce the molasses or cannabinoids and aromas, right? So if the rubber ball is ruptured, it will deflate. It's pretty simple. You know, you, you pop a hole in it. It's not going to be able to stay taunt. And it's going to, it's going to wrinkle in a way and kind of crinkle in a way that's very obvious. It's not, it looks, you know, like a, a ball that has no air in it, very deflated. You know, I can point to scientific articles that show this. A plump, smooth ball with extra growth is proof of an inner wall, right? The inner wall must be present and a rupture is not the cause. Do you see how if there was a rupture then and oil came out, then the ball should never still be plump. It's just kind of the way the gland works. The, The factory can't keep up production so much that the the ball is still firm. So there's also the like rounded geometrical shape of the extra growth. The way that it is like a semicircle and a kind of kept down towards the main gland is proof that there must be a cuticle holding it down, keeping it taut. And the, the smoothness of it even is showing that there's a cuticle there holding it down, keeping it taut. Even the, the way sometimes the abscissions will come to a point on the, the top of the gland, both sides, point over here and a point on the opposite side. Oils aren't going to come to a point. Like they're, they're not just going to, oh, oil would make a, you know, it's easiest kind of shape, which is going to be somewhat rounded, but it's never going to be perfectly round. Yeah, like oil can pop out and have tension and create a ball real quick, but gravity is going to pull that oil down over time and make it start to look like melted candle wax. Again, I can point to scientific articles that show this, that show oil on the outside of a cuticle and it looking like a melted candle wax. It does not look perfectly round and geometrical. And I can also point to scientific articles that show extra gland glows that look perfectly round and geometrical. And, you know, there are all these contributing factors. Once you have, you have to kind of look at it from all the angle. Oil open to the air has tension, right? But it can only be for so long. It will evaporate. The terpenes, you know, they evaporate and they'll leave like a crystalline matrix. Since there's no cuticle holding it in, you have to think of like, 
rosin and how it cures over time to open air. The, the terpenes are evaporating. There is no jar even to hold the, the terpenes are just going to go away. And we, we have photos of glands that have ruptured where you can see the cannabinoids starting to crystallize and turn very jagged and, and just show that terpenes have evaporated. The smoothness is proof that there must be a cuticle holding all of those oils within. So I've shown our multi glands stay plump and rounded after days. So I've taken a photo, waited, taken another photo. So that there's like, how could that be? If it's open to the air, the terpenes should have evaporated. We should see some change in the way it looks. It should at least look a little bit different. It looks exactly the same because it is self-contained within a cuticle. Again, I can point to scientific articles that show what open air oils actually look like. Glands can't seal themselves and replump or ruptures wise. That's another kind of like, okay, we can explain one rupture. But again, so we've got this thick rubber ball, right? And it's been cut open and the molasses has come out. The hypothesis is that the oils then seal that rupture on top of it. And then it's a strong enough seal to where the cuticle ruptures again over on the other side. Like common sense is going to tell us if you rupture a ball and oil is sitting on outside and seals it, the second rupture is going to be right there next to the main weak point that's already ruptured. It's been torn. It's not going to seal itself enough to rupture again on the other side. That's just against common sense. Okay, we've shown terpenes sitting on top of the second gland, right? If it was a rupture, the terpenes wouldn't separate from, from themselves. I think that's pretty simple. They're not going to like form a little spot on top of themselves where they've separated. Also be smooth, just like it, it just none of that really makes any sense. Terpenes don't separate from themselves and create a little terpene pool on top of themselves. We've been able to point out the wrinkles and outer cuticle wall on the second gland growth. We've been able to, you know, show where the upper gland, upper gland cuticle rests on the main gland. You can even just see the line of the upper gland cuticle resting on top of the second gland. It's there. It's a, it's a thing. You can point to it. You know, oils aren't going to have a, a line that shows, you know, some kind of wall forming. Scientific articles point to wavy wrinkles as proof of a cuticle, something we've shown on our extra gland growths. Slight wrinkles are much different than the deflating and crackling look of an actually ruptured gland. I know this is a lot, but stay with me here. Again, scientists that are much smarter than me is where I'm sourcing all of my info. I'm not just making any of this stuff up. We've shown inner, inner cell walls on glands that are in normal shape. Okay, so inside the gland, there's a wall and you can see a separation that's forming, but the gland is of a normal shape. Like this is in line with what happens with tomato trichomes. This is a part of the process. An inner cell wall forms first, then it starts to create the two separate abscission zones, the two separate glands. We've shown the main cuticle stretching and separating as though it's about to split in two. Double gland or multi gland trichomes are not new to plants. That's pretty much like a really main takeaway of this. 
tobacco has multiple glands that grow upward. You know, it can grow five glands. Salvia is closely related to cannabis and has double stalked uh, or double gland stalk trichomes that look very similar. It's a stalk and then it comes up and has two glands that are right next to each other with an inner cell wall, just exactly like the photos that I've shown, like just exactly. And again, it's closely related. So the trichomes look kind of similar, but you know, other plants aren't as closely related. So the trichomes aren't going to look similar. The leaves are different. Everything's different about the genetic makeup. So the trichomes aren't going to look exactly the same, but they're going to do similar things. You know, multi-gland trichomes happen. It's it's just a thing. Monkey flower, right? I just found this one. It's a random flower it has stocked double glands that also look similar, but instead they grow upwards. They stack on top of each other, just like the ones that I've shown. Arnica is a mountain flower. It has the type four multi-gland trichomes that grow in many odd arrangements. You know, they're all kind of looks haphazard, but you can see several, like five glands in one kind of glandular shape. Even cannabis, right? The, the bulbous gland, the tiniest gland, can show a complex trichome. It can show many glands and it will stack upon itself upwards. And those mini glands will have a different look. One will be clear, one will be milky, and the top one will be amber. So it's multi-gland complex trichomes are already a thing in cannabis. It's just we've only identified it on the bulbous trichome, right? The smallest one. And what's interesting to me is tomato also has that same complex bulbous trichome. You you can put they look almost identical. The the teeny tiny bulbous glands have many glands upon them. And so it correlates. These, these things correlate. We are just now starting to realize that stalked trichomes, the capitate stalked ones that we all like, the big special ones, can also be complex and have multi-glands. And, you know, I get that it, this is new information and it's you, everyone has set their mind on this is the way cannabis trichomes grow. But if we just think about how cannabis has evolved over the years and how much different it looks from cannabis in the 90s, it's not that hard to understand that it's just a new evolution. Us being able to take a close look for so long is what got us here. You know, it's not, it wasn't an accident <laughs> that we got here. We did it on purpose. So all of our work fits within existing research and comes with multiple examples from various scientific articles. Just pointing to one gland rupture video and then jumping to conclusions is not how science actually works. The situation must be looked at from many angles. Also, there's not a lot of scientific, there's not one scientific article that talks about trichomes being so productive they rupture themselves. Since our work fits, fits within existing research and has a lot of evidence, that makes it a solid scientific theory. Since theirs doesn't and is only explaining one aspect of the story, it becomes a weak hypothesis. Theories that have scientific article references and microscope photos with measurements as comparisons are much stronger than one video hypothesis that doesn't. The gland was literally ruptured from an outside force, not from its own internal pressure. Showing a gland can rupture is only proof of something we all know, glands rupture. Jumping to conclusions after that makes you seem biased. This all reminds me of the BHO guys 
you know, back in 2015 saying, bras and boys, that campaign didn't age well, right? Neither will the pushback of our work. We've proven that weak neck and trichome traits are genetic. We've measured and selected glands to enlarge them through selective breeding. We told everyone along the way, in 2020, we found this multi-gland trichome, planned on breeding with further. We showed the trait last year on Joma the Hut and Diamond Gland. We've had people find the trait on our genetics and be able to get a good macro photo of it. The Cab Lab, somebody on Instagram with our genetics, shared a photo of partial gland abscission on Sugar Shack. It looks identical to the photos that we've shown, just exactly the same. He's also won a soil-grown rosin contest with Sugar Shack. We're not making this stuff up. The fact that it fits within existing research, it's what makes me so confident that it's real. Do you think part of the pushback comes from claiming that you've done something new within this space, let's say? Um, Yeah, I think that, you know, there's also, I think there's a lot of factors that are going in to the pushback. I think that sometimes people are scared of us believing that we did a thing and kind of realizing that it took a lot of hard work for us to do that thing. And that if they're going to want to stay relevant, they're going to have to do a lot of hard work also. And so what's easier than doing a lot of hard work? Just discrediting us, you know, just taking cheap shots, finding a little ways to poke holes in like one photo, but we're going to overlook all of this other stuff. We're not going to try to explain that inner cell wall. We're not going to, you know, try to explain that upper gland cuticle wall that you pointed out. We're just, we're, you know what, we're, we're going to only be real vague and show how this rupture that I caused looks similar, you know, and just kind of like let people do some some jumping to conclusions like there and then i do think it's also just with the way things go with a new idea people have a hard time to kind of just you know opening their mind to change but cannabis is evolving we are selectively breeding it it is changing nothing is staying the same everything's changing and it's just a normal pushback. People push back when big changes happen because it makes them feel uncomfortable. And I think that that along with, you know, some other factors of how people want themselves to be perceived is, you know, uh, the, the gumbo of how we've gotten here. You said this has been a theory of yours for a while now and through the work, the visuals the proof in the genetics that other people are growing out, you feel like it's proven to you. Do you feel like it's fair for someone still to feel a kind of resistance to that? Um, no, I, you know, I, I don't think it's actually fair. You know, I kind of have been saying this is a, an analogy of, you know, we're astronauts and we've gone to a different planet and taken photos. And yeah, there are other astronauts, but they went to a, a different planet. They didn't go to the same planet we went to. And yeah, they took photos, but they didn't get, they don't have all of the information that we have. And they don't, they haven't, you know, touched the glands and done the blind test washes that confirm 
that these plants with extra glands dump more than the plants that are just weak neck. You know, like we've got, you know, ones that don't dump at all and they're just too oily. And then we've got these weak neck ones and then we've got these ones that have multiple glands. So yeah, just, it's kind of, it, it, it does seem to me like you're, you're just not in your own lane. And if you actually had all the information we had, you would kind of look at the situation differently. Or maybe if you just weren't coming from whatever angle that you're coming from and, and had these internal like biases of this can't be true. Like it, yeah, it does not really, it does not seem fair or uh, genuine to me, the, the actual discussion. It seems way more like it's coming from a place of we must stop this. We must downplay this for, you know, financial and kind of top dog reasons way more than uh, this is let's talk about it. You know, like it's, it's not a genuine discussion. So bringing this back now to hash, why do you feel like these genetics and these type of trichomes and some of these characteristics that we've talked about, why is it a good thing for water hash? Okay, so like I've said before, we've, we know that it is related to the weak neck trait. The weak neck trait is called abscission, really. And I've talked about abscission before. It's just a spot where the cells break. For weak neck, it so happens to be the whole gland. But when you look into these other trichome types, they talk about it as an abscission also. And that's because that extra gland growth will pop off. Right. And you kind of kind of start to think like, well, why is the plant doing this? And what the scientists say is that the gland wants to get bigger, but the cuticle wall is only so strong. So as it continues to get bigger, the the plant is going, oh, my God, this this thing I've created with all of these toxic chemicals to myself is going to burst and get onto me and hurt me. So instead makes another wall inside or another gland so that it's it's not just weak it's not this big weak balloon it's two balloons that are kind of stronger right and so it's it's adapting to make large trichomes that are safe for itself and it's also an ad adapting in the way that if a pest comes by and bumps up against it one of the glands will break off and you know, stick to the pest or bother the pest and it leaves the other gland as more protection, right? So this is a, the plant adapting to be more protective of itself. But so we kind of like, you know, go put it all together here. And that means that these glands will break apart in the wash, like a big multi-gland that ends up being 180 microns all together is going to break apart. That's what the scientists tell us. That's what we're seeing in the test washes. And so pretty much to have more gland on one stock instead of having two stocks, right? We've got one stock with the same amount of gland and they detach easily, right? Which is making the wash quicker because of the weak neck trait, right? And the abscission trait. We don't have to wash as long, causing less plant contamination and since there's just less stock to gland ratio 
the chance of getting stock contamination in your hash is less. So it's just you know, a great trait for hash. Like when we are trimming and bucking down these plants, you can feel these oily, sandy glands everywhere. They fall like dust. They're all over the table. You, it feels like a shuffleboard, a oily shuffleboard of sand. And the glands are already detaching themselves. There are, they're, they're like, yay, let me go. So it's just great for hash. It's like what you, it's the true trait that you want. And whenever we first kind of discovered the weak neck trait, I was talking about it. You know, I didn't know what abscission was. And that's when Frenchie kind of told me, but other people in the comments were like, yeah, we've had that before. We call those champagne poppers, you know, because the glands just pop off, you know? So it's a, you know, a trait that's in like hash plant, you know, it's been around this, this trait. And we are finally kind of being able to zero in on what it is. Frenchie helped me zero in what that is and how to understand what's going on. Yeah, it's just a, a great thing for hash in many, many ways. Do you feel like this, let's call it additional oil that's growing out of these abscission points is equal to the quality of oil found in the main trichome, let's call it? Like, are, we, are you just getting more of better oil or do you feel like there's any kind of of the oil in the abscission points can be different or maybe this is not the right word, but inferior. Yeah, totally. So I, we don't know. It does. You can see that on sometimes whenever the extra growth is down near the uh, secretory cells, that it will produce secretory vessels within that one. And whenever the gland, the, the extra gland growth is on the top, it won't have those secretory vesicles. And um, when I have found examples of a gland growing an extra gland, a little abscission on top, they have pointed to, you know, what is in that gland. They know specifically. And so we don't know specifically, and I can't claim I've gone with the needle and, you know, pulled out just that stuff. and it's the same. It's exactly the same. So I, you know, I cannot confidently, and I like to be honest and, you know, tell you, this is what we know now. And so I don't know. I don't know. It could be different. It could be, you know, just terpenes. It could be, I don't, you know, I, that, that is a, a still an unknown, but my gut does tell me that it's similar. You know, like if the plant wants to protect itself, it's going to use the tools that it has to protect itself, which are cannabinoids and aromas. And it, it's going to be one of those two, if not both of those two, most likely in that extra growth. But to, to say 100% I know, it would be just not honest. I'm going to slip in the question here because I've listened to our interview and one of the things that we didn't talk a lot about, funny enough, is making hash. Uh, we talked a yeah. little bit on it, you know, and at one point you mentioned, I think it's the ones with the weak neck trait. You're like, you know, typically you do a three minute wash and, and you're good to go. 
what is your typical wash cycle when you're not working with strains, for example, that are like the three minute washers? Um, uh, it's always been seven minutes for me. You know, that was a uh, nicotine was like seven minutes. I asked him like seven minutes is it. And I would, you know, have the timer and constantly go for seven minutes for each wash, you know, maybe the third wash kind of knowing that it's going to be more food grade. I might go 10 just on like how I'm feeling, but definitely those first two washes, I wouldn't go over seven minutes and um, you kind of see how water develops as you're washing it, how milky it gets. And that was definitely one of the aha moments for us when we first washed sugar coat. It, it, it was done in like really two minutes, like one to two minutes. You can see a dr drastic change in the color of the water and it looks as though you're done and you start to go, okay, well, why should I, I should probably shouldn't be agitating it much more than this. And another thing that you'll notice with weak neck when you're washing it is that that second wash is like nothing. You know, like almost all of it came off in that first three minutes. You know, you're getting less terpenes that will, you know, come off from the water. You, you know, you're going to have more terpenes that are just stay on the gland because you're not mixing it around in the water for 14 minutes. You're only mixing it for three, you know? Yeah. It's very obvious and people that uh, get our genetics, get our clones or seeds from us are constantly being amazed at that process. And like, I've never, never seen this before. And this is just crazy. It's exactly what you said. It was just done. And you, what, it's a gentle wash. I don't even really need to wash it that hard. It just comes apart. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard, I guess, to get the pushback so much for the multi-gland thing when we've been able to prove weak necks real gland size is a trait you can select for and and we've kind of along the way been showing our work and not it's not like we just came out one day and we're like oh multi-glands you know like it's it's progressed. It's slowly progressed to this point. We didn't get any pushback along the way when we showed those other things but all of a sudden now that it's become a real big deal people don't don't want to just like let it slide they, they want to be like uh -uh, uh uh i can't i can't hang with that so yeah i have always washed my hand i've never really had the best results with washing with a machine and i think being able to like look at it as you wash it is a good indicator and it has helped me understand the differences in genetics. You mentioned earlier, if you increase the amount of heads, basically the ratio to stocks, even if it is in your hash will be less. Do you find like with your genetics, not only are there less stocks, but because of that weak neck trait, you're getting mostly heads and almost no stocks. Is there a separation from the stock that's not getting into the washes to begin with? Yeah, for sure. Again, we've got a lot of people saying it's crazy how clean the hash is whenever, you know, I press it into rosin and it becomes just like so clear and it just does not look the same as the other 
hash that I wash and there, there are stocks in it. Like there is stuff in the stocks. Like we know that, that there, there's stuff in there. So if you're got it, you get it in the hash and you're pressing it out, it's going to come out and it's, there's like phenols and flavonoids and like sugars that will, that can come out of the stock. So having the stock not present and having it be the majority of glands, you know, people will be like, man, I got a crazy return numbers on, you know, just two rosin, my hash two rosin. It's like almost 99%. This is, it's like, there's nothing in there, you know, and that is going to give you like a more stable rosin at the end, because it's not this mix of other stuff from the stock. And yeah, it's just going to be cleaner and more concentrated on the stuff that we want, the cannabinoids and the aromas. Like there's a reason that the cab lab was like, oh, I won with this sugar shock. Like, yeah, he he did a great job growing it, but the gland had a abscission trait that made the washing easy and understanding that it's a combination of grow style and genetics that gets you great hash and you know having us on kind of on your side and doing all of this research looking into you know different aroma uh, chemicals that would wash well and won't be sticky and understanding how larger glands are going to produce these more complex aromas and not be sticky and wash well it, it's you're kind of just like able to piggyback off of a lot of this scientific research that I've been doing or we've been doing. And yeah, I'm happy to do it. I love to be helping the community. That's why I've always tried to share all this information. I think that the more that we open source and tell people our findings, the the more that they can understand and do it themselves and that we all grow as a community. And it really is important to me that you know, we are together, we're in this boat together. And it, it it does really kind of boggle my mind that a lot of this pushback is coming from people that are very similar to us. You know, it's not like it's coming from these big brands and the big, you know, suits or outside. It's within our community, we're in fighting with our own community. We should be like focusing on the big picture that there are, other people trying to step in and take our place. We should be helping each other and working with each other, not trying to take each other down. It just, the amount of things that align with the people that are pushing back against us is just kind of staggering. Like we agree on just about everything. You should, you should just let it go at this point. So you know, I, I'm definitely understanding that being a well-known breeder is more than just doing all the hard work. There is this new aspect of, you know, being known and not people not knowing the entirety of our work and just kind of being able to go, ah, no, no, no. and yeah, you have to be able to just go, okay, you know, not everybody is going to have been along for the ride this whole time. And it's, that's okay. They'll figure it out sooner or later. And I have to ask because you brought it up a few times and in part, that's why we're having this conversation is on a personal note, you mentioned, you know, you haven't faced, let's say, a lot of adversity in the pushback over the last several years in doing this work. 
And it's something that has recently popped up. Like you said, as things get bigger for you, it might not be the last of this, but how does this make you feel on a personal level? I mean, I think you touched upon it right now when you talked about trying to work together because in the end, we all are like these tiny, small guys. And, you know, as things change and develop in this space, there there certainly will be bigger and more powerful players, if you want to call it that. So, you know, I'm just curious what your personal stance is. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it was just a very abrupt turn for me and I wasn't ready for it. You know, it came from other people talking about our work. It's not like I did anything that uh, made people all of a sudden, you know, said disbelieve what I said. And I guess I think that in the past, because I have been so educational and so open and honest and tried to educate the community. And, you know, I've been given credit by so many people. Like I talked to uh, 710 Lab guys and they're like, we learned so much about glands from you. I talked to the low temp guys. We've learned so much about glands from you. Time and time, Nick a T, like pick. There are uh, many people who, you know, even the Puffco guys, just talking to the Puffco guys, the, the head hash guy at Puffco is like, I love your page and have learned so much from you. So, you know, it, I, we have, I gained respect for being open and providing information to the community over the years. And I rarely got pushback. Like most people are like, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. That checks out. And then all of a sudden it, it just turned a corner. And so, yeah, it was definitely difficult for me at first. And I don't think I handled it well just because I was not ready for it. And, you know, I can't go back, but yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm starting to understand that it's just a small thing. And, and I, it's a, a response to a, something that we did. We did a thing. And if we didn't do a thing, then we wouldn't be getting the pushback. So it's kind of like a good thing to get the pushback. We, we did something that's important and, you know, needs to be said. Cool. Well, again, I appreciate you hopping back on with me and talking about some of these points and being able to clarify some of your thoughts regarding them. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before we sign off? Um, I don't think so. Just besides, uh, um, I really do appreciate you providing me this space to tell my story and being able open to adding this little segment that I really needed to uh, get out to everybody. And yeah, just kind of, I do appreciate you, Shragam, and what you what you've done for the community, and um, just kind of being an open person to what's going on so i thank you for letting me come on yeah of course dude it's my pleasure it was great chatting it up and i'm glad that we were able to have this secondary discussion and for anybody that stuck with us this long and checked out this additional segment we appreciate you and you can follow kale on instagram at shwale that's at s-h-w-a-l-e or at farmhouse studio that's at farmhouse underscore studio with a zero at the end we appreciate you and we'll catch you next time. 
Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.